Coming up next, a Regency romp with George and Emma. I think his name's George. Yeah, it's George. Okay, John is his brother. That's right. A good character who rightfully perhaps is always kind of cut out of or downplayed from the movies, but quite a fun character. Yeah. And, and a good reflection on Mr. Knightley himself, Mr. George Knightley. You learn a little something about the Knightley family from spending some time with John Knightley. Well, here we are again, gentlemen. It's Valentine's Day to all you ladies out there listening. Happy Valentine's Day. It's not actually Valentine's Day, but when we're recording this, but maybe it's Valentine's Day when you're listening. Maybe you knew that the thing to make your day as romantic as possible was to listen to three gentlemen quickly approaching middle age talking about a Jane Austen novel. We may have done be middle-aged, right? Are we middle-aged? Yeah, probably. I mean, assuming we all die at 50, we're well above it. So, yeah, here we are. It's the beginning. We're talking about Emma by Jane Austen, one of my favorite novels. It's possible I have offspring that may or may not have the name Emma, and it may or may not be for the reason that I enjoy this novel so darn much. Maybe it's because I'm hoping some guy in his late 20s will fall in love with my little girl when she turns 13 and form her character such that she pleases him by the time she's 21, and then they'll get married. Probably not, though. As one can only hope. Eight years of grooming. Eight years of grooming. <laughs> the alternate title. Fun fact, Jane, Jane Austen <laughs> thought about uh, First Impressions was the name for <laughs> Pride and Prejudice. This novel was originally called Eight Years of Grooming, but... She thought it's like eight years in Tibet or whatever that was. Yeah, yeah. seven years in Tibet, uh, eight years yeah. of grooming. What are the other great time period <laughs> names? I don't know. Uh, love in the time of cholera. Yeah, we don't know how long he was. I mean, we do if we read the novel. Twenty-one years a slave or whatever. Twenty-one years a slave. There yeah. Go. What else? Surely there's others. Oh, there's got to be others. One year at Maraband. Isn't there something mm. something about Maraband and the time spent there? I don't even know what Maraband is. This title is just occurring to me. Julian Barnes has one, right? The History of the World and something. Let's see here. We'll find out. The History of the World in ten and a half chapters. <laughs> it's not really one, sorry. <laughs> that was disappointing. Well, folks, get ready for some saucy hot takes. We already said the phrase eight years of grooming Woo. in our Emma review. So that that's fun. Yeah. That's fun. Hey, I like this book. I think we all like this book, right? Yeah. Yeah, we love this book. Is it unfair to say we all love this book? No. So maybe we'll have a little fun with it. We've already recorded. Like, Did Jake just say it's not fair to say we all love it? No. No. He said it is fair to say we it all love it. It is fair to say we all love it. And you would agree with that sentiment. I, yeah. I take it. Yeah, I think there's a good argument to be made. This is Jane Austen's best. We've had the conversation before and everybody kind of agrees. Well, Pride and Prejudice has just planted the flag in the public imagination and what are you going to do? It's got oodles of plot and you just can't really argue with it. But this might be, it's superior in some respects, at least I would say Mr. Knightley is a superior characterization to Mr. Darcy for one thing. And maybe that's the only thing where you could make a fairly definitive argument, but yeah, Emma, it's a book by Jane Austen. It's one that we have here in front of us. Now, what will you guys be doing for your for your ladies this Valentine's Day? Oh, uh, 
It's before Christmas. Mm-hmm. When we're recording this? Yeah. And I have not a thought. Not a th- Well. I'm worried about Christmas right now. Oh, Jake, not much of a romantic, is he, Brandon? No. I'm going to get Amanda a lump of coal for Valentine's Day, maybe. Yep. She'll finally be able to keep herself warm. It'll be a good, <laughs> good, good present. Yeah. She's been asking for it. They're very poor. <laughs> She's like, please, Jake, may I have a lump of coal? He's like... Ah, let your icicles melt. Let your icicles melt. That doesn't make any sense. Let your <laughs> pen ink be icy. And your steak of holly, what's that in your heart? Yeah, and your steak yeah. of... Is Hawk. Your st- Hawk of holly. Hawk of holly. <laughs> and your hock of holly. Hawk of holly in your heart. Hawk of holly in your heart. Uh, Brandon likes to hawk hit, hit the old hock of holly sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Hawk of holly. <laughs> <laughs> Was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to the booking, everybody. We're off and running. We I want are. somebody someday to do like you know how they've uh, taken the um, uh, Ian Malcolm laugh. You know when Nathan does his over the top exaggerated laugh, they've taken like that Ian Malcolm laugh and turned it into like songs and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, auto tuned it. You want somebody to do a Nathan's Laugh remix? Yeah, I think that'd be super fun. Do I have an exaggerated laugh? What you just did? <laughs> I don't know, I've never done that in my life. That was new. Waka waka. No, you do that. All, you do that one quite a bit. That wasn't new. I think our listeners were experiencing the thrill of invention. <laughs> no, false. I do that all the time. Yes. Oh, all the time. Yep. Ha ha. Yeah. Like, do it again. Do what I do. <laughs> so I'm a witch. Am I am I boiling <laughs> yeah. like kittens and yeah. stuff like that? You are. <laughs> you, you also yes, go that's high completely, with it. Yeah, it's completely unrelated. Though. I have a high pitched <laughs> normal laugh. Like when I think something's funny, sometimes I'll go. I mean, I don't say something funny. Somebody. I mean, we don't need it. <laughs> I mean, I'll do like that kind of thing, I guess. But I was not aware that I had an Ian Malcolm. Ha <laughs> ha. No, you, you you do, and sometimes you go super high with it. When you're <laughs> no, you, it's. <laughs> It turns into that's sort of like a little squeal. A hey, we caw, caw, caw. <laughs> we don't want to examine any any of our laughs here too much. No, I don't nobody likes their laugh, laugh being examined. But it no, is. A, that's it what is, he's going to do. A, it is a truth universally <laughs> acknowledged. Acknowledge that nobody likes their laugh examined. I think Jake's afraid we're going to examine his laugh. I am. Yeah, let's I don't examine want Jake's that. laugh now <laughs> under the microscope. <laughs> Please don't. What's weird about Jake's laugh? Jake doesn't have anything to ashamed of. To ashamed of? No. <laughs> Jake's got a nice laugh. Yeah, it's very pleasant. Aww. I like laughing with Jake. Jake's I do it all the time. I like laughing with laugh. all of you guys. It's fun to laugh with that's you. That's why we're here. Yeah, that's why we're here. <laughs> yeah. I don't pay attention. I mean, there's some people that have very distinctive laughs. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but your wife, my wife, but yes, that's that's yes, your wife does have a distinct Almost made me not marry her. It's horrifying. No, uh, <laughs> it actually it reminds me of my aunt. Oh, let's call her Beatrice, and she was not a beloved aunt. She was a Jane Austen bad guy, like a Mrs. Been. Norris. She was a Norris Norrisian. Not not exactly, but Jane Austen would have had a field day writing about my aunt, and I guarantee you she would have ended up in Jane Austen's novels. She was that kind of oppressive woman that Jane Austen likes to take down. There's very little chance that my aunt is listening to this podcast right now, so I do not mind talking about her, although I will not say her name. But if you're listening and you're thinking, was it me? The answer is definitely not. No, it wasn't you. No. It was the other one. Unless you happen to be this aunt that is listening randomly for the first time. Right. If then it is you. Yeah. 
But if you're the one that I liked, then it's not. You. That's fine. And that's probably who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say it. The one that I liked was the pastor, actually. There you go. Well, now, now you know. Now, yeah, now you know it's not you. Don't think she should have been a pastor, but she was nice and creative and fun. Yeah. And the kind of person that would be a pastor in whatever corny denomination she was part of. You speak of her in the past tense. Yeah, well. Is she gone? Who can say? Who can say? There's nothing in my trunk, I'll tell you that much. How about your closet? How about in the crawl space of your house? There is definitely nothing in my uh, crawl space. In my. Because you don't have a crawl space. I don't have a crawl space. You kind of have a crawl space. I got a crawl space. Yeah. Where? It's like half of the house is over crawl space, the other half is basement. Oh, weird. Yeah. These are the things people tune in to learn about. Uh, I did not murder my aunt. She is not in my closet. I have no or skeletons. Crawl space. I have metaphorical skeletons, perhaps, but I have no literal skeletons in my closet. I'm not Brandon. I mean, yeah, you know, I got literal skeletons. Yeah, Brandon is a avid collector of uh, lemur skeletons. He's got them dangling like puppets in, yep. all around my house. Dangling like puppets all across Brandon's house. <laughs> he likes to catch a lemur. He likes to skin it. He likes to make it talk. Bleach it, and then we hang it up in our house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't walk through without the bones rattling like death's wind chimes. <laughs> yes. Well, that was your point. That was always your dream to have bones rat, lemur bones rattle like death's wind chimes. Right. And you finally you made, achieved it. You I achieved, achieved it. it. You live to, in the dream. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations, I, Brandon. Thank you, guys. Yes, you're welcome. I accept the. We always grace. knew you could do it. <laughs> I'm not sure if I, I can even picture a lemur. Do they have long snouts? I don't think they have long snouts. Are they kind of... Oh, yeah, you can. Uh, Madagascar. Those things are lemurs. That guy's a lemur. Okay. Yeah. Ray Romano is a lemur. Ray Romano's... No, Ray Romano's like a tiger. I've never seen a Madagascar movie. It's those little things. Ray Romano's Ice Age. I'm sorry. Uh, that guy. Okay. That that, guy so right it's kind of like a deformed raccoon kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, like a raccoon and a cat had a baby. Like a raccoon and a cat had a baby. Yeah. And that's an abomination that Brandon can't stand, so he skins them, and he fills his house with their bones. And they I rat- do. They so, rattle. A little bit of koala in there, maybe, too. Yeah. Uh, even more of a disgrace. A disgrace. <laughs> 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 this particular animal is a disgrace. Aww. Aww. Okay. No, that's not aww. That's terrifying. <laughs> I was just I was peer pressured into awing. Brandon was awing, so I thought I'd awe too. <laughs> they don't have they I, have I this, anything that I want to kill. <laughs> they have this like oh, no. <laughs> persistently vacant expression that is kind of horrifying. Like you can't find them. Their eyes are always it's like they don't have eyelids right. to give them any expression. So right. it's like it's podcasting like, with Brandon. Yeah, <laughs> it's like his eyes are just wide and always staring at you like some kind of like a doll's eyes. Like a doll's eyes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> What's that from? That's from Joss. Glassy oh, yeah. orbs where my eyes should be. You can't see in them. Yeah, let's go on. I don't know. You just got glassy orbs where your eyes should be? Yeah, just a blank expression. Just a blank expression? Yeah. And if anyone says the word lemur, you go into a kill state. I do. It's like uh, a little bit of catcher in the rye there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all the serial killers carry it around with them. Yeah, I got it in my back pocket right now. Well, speaking of rye. Rye. Jane Austen had a rye wit. Speaking of serial killers, she did not serialize her novels. Nope. But she did have killer insights. She didn't even allow the publisher to buy this one off her. She published it herself and then gave him like a little on the side. (laughs) Why did the publisher deserve anything? Because he helped her publish it. Okay. 
Yeah. She wasn't let her, gonna let herself be held back by the patriarchy. Yeah, that's right. Just like Emma. Just like Emma. Well, not really, though. She was held back by the patriarchy. She was groomed by the patriarchy. Groomed by the patriarchy. She mm. was made. And then she kind of half-heartedly stood up to the patriarchy, and then the patriarchy was like, nah, you like it. And she was like, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Mm. She was created in the lab of Knightley's Edwardian chivalric something or other. Lab. Yeah. <laughs> she was created in a lab of Knightley's Edwardian chivalric lab. Oh, my goodness. Well, I guess we're going to have to have a serious conversation about the age discrepancy because it's clearly on our mind. And I'll tell you why, folks, because we read this. We talked about this novel six or seven years ago. I always forget which. was it. Six? No, it would have been seven because there's seven Jane Austen novels, right? Or no? We, we would have just been 30. Yeah. This is the first time where we're actually Knightley's age or older. I think it's, it's it last. The first time I read this novel, I was probably Emma's age or younger. And she was my figure of identification. Last time when we read it together, we were all kind of. Somewhere in between, and now we are thoroughly Knightley's age. Yeah. And so that does make a difference. We are Knightley. How old is he in this book? He is 39. Yeah. yeah. So we're not quite there. I turned 39 in February. Oh, there you go. Right. He is the Knightley of this podcast. Right. And so all you have to do is think of someone who you know who's 21, and you can be like, oh, that's what this novel's talking about. And that just makes it a little more visceral. Mm-hmm. The old age discrepancy. I've known you since you were a child, and I fell in love with you when you were 13. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although I will say, how many people in Jane Austen novels get married? Because it's more than one that gets married when they're like 16, 15, 16, something like that. So falling in love when you're with someone when they're 13 is like our equivalent of falling in love with when you're 16, let's say. It's a little different. Sure. I was just hoping you guys wouldn't push back and would just silently judge me and our listeners could assume you wholeheartedly agreed. I also, it also hits because I have a 13 year old daughter. Right. Yeah. And I have the equivalent would be, you know, what the 28 year old man Mm -hmm. in our church. You're like, Hey, what if that guy was in love with my daughter and trying to shape her and form her character into somebody that he could marry over the next eight years? Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, that'd, buddy. That'd be weird. You'd want to shoot him. That's Yeah, you can just go die. Dumbledore level creepy crud right mm-hmm. there. Dumbledore level. Yeah, he's just always behind the scenes manipulating things uh, for yeah. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Dumbledore is nightly in this case. Like Severus Snape had a reason to be mad at Dumbledore for... Just, By the end? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, we all had a reason to be mad You're with manipulating Dumbledore. Dumbledore things, sucks. guy. Um, there probably was some pent-up resentment behind that Avada Kedavra from Snape, actually. I suspect so. Yeah. yeah. I say good. He deserves it. it. Yeah. Yep. Dumb. Best headmaster there ever was. Snape. Snape. Yeah. He got to be headmaster for like two days. <laughs> hey, we're not supposed to be talking about Harry Potter. No, we're supposed to be talking about the age discrepancy and making everybody feel queasy about a novel that's great fun and... That we all love. That we all love. We do love it. Well, here's the thing, guys. We're all really comfortable with this topic. And the reason we're really comfortable with this topic is because... If we, we know there's like aggro, incel kind of guys listening, and it is our goal to make sure that they f- have full permission to start grooming 13 year old girls. Start grooming 13 year old girls. Yeah. Yeah. Get right at like it. Like my daughter. Please. Yeah. Please. Yeah. G- uh, become a youth group leader or. A, this is the Warhorn School for Groomers. The, yeah. Grooming. 
The W-H-S-F-G. Yeah. Got a great acronym. Uh, that's what we're saying. No, that's not actually what we're saying. That was a little bit of sarcasm. <laughs> Look, I think we can just deal with this issue very simply at the outset of this podcast and then not deal with it anymore. The reason that this discussion is complicated is because we try and think of analogies, or we don't try, we do think of analogies to our lives. And there is, no matter who you are, no matter what the situation is, there is just simply nothing analogous. There is no 28-year-old guy listening right now that has a situation that's analogous to the situation in this novel where he needs to be having any kind of relationship that's anywhere like Nightlay and Emma. It's just like, yep, no. this is like a novel about an alien civilization or something like that. It is so far and so remote. Yeah, there are just no analogs. And so what is the situation? Well, it's an extremely limited group of people. It was a social world where everybody matured at a much faster rate and were expected to mature at a much faster rate and was set up to afford those opportunities and compel people to mature at a much faster rate and where women were expected to not only mature, but then to marry fairly young, still in their teen years, and where men were expected to go out and make their fortune and establish themselves and then get married to the best available uh, young lady in her teens or early 20s. And early 20s was often too late. Like, you just, who's available, who's eligible, who's matured enough? That was it. And you you had uh, so much smaller communities and social circles uh, that you were moving in. It's not like 28 or 35 or 38-year-old George Knightley uh, could hop on the internet and go to singles or Christian mingle or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. not like uh, he lived in a highly populated area. It's not like he had a car where he could travel and go places uh, with great convenience. And so, and and the class roles and distinctions were also very strictly observed. And that's a big part of what we also see happening in any Austin novel. So just like the pool of eligible people for either of these two, for either Emma or Knightley, it's very, 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 very small. And so- in the way the novel's set up, they're kind of made for each other. They kind of know it, but don't want to admit it. Everybody else kind of knows it. Mrs. What's-Her-Face, Emma's old governess, knows it. I mean, if you want a biblical analog, then like so many of Jane Austen's stories, this one reflects the story of Ruth and Boaz, where Boaz calls her my daughter for most of the story. He's an established older man. Older man. And there's more of a parental kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. That's even acknowledged, even to the point where Boaz, uh, Ruth essentially proposes or invites or asks Boaz to propose to her, mm-hmm. where Boaz is, looks at her and says, it's really sweet. You could have gone after- Frank Churchill. Yeah, Frank, all the Frank Churchills of the world. There are so many young eligible men that would have been happy to marry you that, or that you could have gone after and you chose me and I'm kind of an old man. I'm kind of an old bachelor. I like, but you went after the right, the right person, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer of your family. It's a kindness to Naomi. That's go, like, there's all these other things that make that uh, Ruth Boas story alien mm-hmm. 
uh, and not analogous to our our romances today. Right. But um, Emma actually has a lot that's alien about it. A lot that's actually closer to that than to this. Not not that any of them are perfectly analogous. Right. And so if you're listening to this and you're a guy and you think I just need to find the right 13 uh, A you're not nightly, B <laughs> she's not Emma. You're probably just a creeper who's too weak to actually find someone and attract someone your own age. And so you want to find somebody who's young and stupid enough to to be manipulated by you. Whereas in the logic of this story, George Knightley, whatever you want to say about the fact that he improves her character, Emma's got it made. She's got a lot of natural advantages. And she's not even in the position in terms of Ruth and Boaz where she has anything to be desperate about. Right. Right. I mean, if she were, you could see this feeling a little a little different. Right. And when Jane Austen wrote that story, Pride and Prejudice, she aged down Darcy just enough. I think he's probably right. in his early 30s, if I'm remembering correctly, and Elizabeth's 18, and nobody's <laughs> bothered by that story. Maybe he's even in his late 20s. I don't know. Well, even then... They were introduced when they were introduced. Right. Right. And that also makes a difference into how we think about that story or this story. The Darcy who shows up and is attracted by 18 or 19-year-old Elizabeth is not the same as the Knightley who waited Mm -hmm. eight years from age 13 to 21 for Emma to grow and mature and silently, secretly loved her without much of a hope in mm-hmm. his mind of it actually working out. Right. But loved her enough to also be interested in her and jealous for her to her character to be formed well. Right. And loved her with enough chastity that the novel's not embarrassed about it, but also loved her with enough with enough kick to it that the novel's having some fun with it. Darcy's jealous or not uh, Knightley's jealous. The one the one's the one chapter we get from Knightley's point of view has him jealous without quite knowing that that's what he is. He's he's mad at Frank Churchill and he has all these character reasons why he's mad at Frank Churchill, but we as we as the reader know why he's actually mad cuz he's jealous. You know, Frank's moving in on his territory. Yeah. So that it's just young dashing man. Dash him. Yeah, he wanted to make your brains dashing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, is there is there anything else to say about that? No. I think you guys got it. <clears throat> All right. Well done. Thanks. Well, goodly done. Goodly done. Thanks. All right. That's the podcast. Bye. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Frailty. Frailty, thy name is Brandon. There it is. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> hey. Yeah. It's the context. <laughs> Woo. Guns. Context guns. Remember when I used to be good at? Doing my own shtick. Yeah, remember when I used to be good at doing context? No. <laughs> no. Oh. <laughs> oh. No, Brandon, you were always good at doing that context. That hurts. Yeah, but Nathan's still... never been good at doing his own that shtick. Hurts. I'm leaving. Nathan makes a new shtick each episode. Yeah. Hey, it's the that's always... okay. That's his shtick. Speak softly that's and carry a big shtick. That's what I always say. Have I said? I'm sure I've said that before. <laughs> no, I'm yeah. sure you have, yeah. Are there any other shtick-related famous puns that we could stick shtick into? Stick them up. (laughs) (laughs) Frailty, thy name is Brandon.
<laughs> you know you liked it, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I did. <laughs> it was goodly done. Uh, all right, Brandon. You are the contextual Texan. Yeah, you, come, the, you hail from Texas. I you provide do. Much needed context on the works that we discuss. I, yeah, sure. And you're about to do that regarding. Yeah, uh, this is one of those that we've now done how many times? Oh, I don't Twice. know. This is the second time. Oh, the context for yeah. all, just Jane Austen. Yeah, this might be the. This eight. is number nine. Yeah. Wow. Right, because she has seven. Uh huh. Well, I said that earlier, but is that true? Let's see. So it's sense. It's pride. It's Emma. It might just be six. It's Mansfield. It's persuasion, and it's Northanger. That's six, and I don't. It's the juvenilia, and I and then yeah, it's like the stupid lady Susan and so seven. So this is the eighth time. Yeah, Yeah. the eighth time we've done this, and so with uh, Shakespeare, I believe I kind of made you guys participate by trying to give you a quiz that you refused to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So let's try it with this. All right, (laughs) when things don't work, (laughs) it's a sign of sanity and mental health. Because this is a plug for people. Uh, we do appreciate our patrons and would love to see some more patrons. Yeah. You get a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. Supports these wonderful guys. Mm-hmm. And in this one, actually, it has a wonderful chronology in it. Mm-hmm. Ooh. And so instead of- You're going to try and make me and Jake say dates? Yeah. Instead of pulling out my notes, I can just use this and then kind of- Bad dates. Remember, remember what movie is that from? from there. Nobody knows. I think everybody knows. What? Yeah, that's the joke. What was yeah, the joke? what it was. And what joke? What Bad dates. What movie is that from? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can't say it out loud. No, we won't. If you figure out what movie that is and you're the first to email it to please don't bother me at yahoo.com, then we will send Never you. know because- It's my favorite movies growing up. That's true. Access it's a clue. to that account. It's one of Brandon's and, favorite movies growing up. And I think up. it was the inspiration for wanting to become a professor at first. Mm-hmm. And now well, of course, I, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. Striptease with and Demi I, Moore. I think yeah. that was your favorite movie. Yeah, that's, up. that's right. She goes I, on a bunch I, of bad I, dates. Hang on, hang on. I think I'm having a realization about myself. Yeah. I think that, you know, I get to do these things. I get to do some teaching occasionally, but I feel like part of the reason that I've gotten into caving mm-hmm. with surveying and stuff like that with cave exploration is because I feel like I can bring the desire to be that wow. character full circle. You just need a fedora and a whip. Yeah. So I get to have some adventure. I get to have some books. Mm-hmm. Life couldn't be any better. Girls in your class are always closing their eyes because <laughs> they painted love you on their eyelids. All the time. All the time. At All... least one or two a day. Yeah, I mean, there are no girls. I teach at the, I teach a class at the pastor's college. So it's the pastor's students that are doing <laughs> right. it. So, yeah, that's weird. You creepy and weird. Yeah, yeah, I might need to bring that to the but attention might of need the to board. Disqualify yeah, you guys. really don't want a pastor who's <laughs> painting on his eyelids love you for a class with Brandon or any class, really. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. I'll, I'll even go so far as to say it's super weird. Super Beyond weird. kind of. I'll say it's galactically <laughs> weird. Oh, man, you beat me there. <laughs> out of this world. It's out of this it's world. Out of this weirdness, world. <laughs> dude. <laughs> That's a deep, or not a deep cut, but an old cut. Ah, the bookening. We have fun. All right, Brandon. So we have to guess. Ask us some questions. I bet we well, can do this one. When was the date of MS publication? Oh, brother. 17 something. No. 18 something. something. Yeah, 18 for sure. Very early 18? Yeah. 1808. Well, not that early. <laughs> 1834. Uh, earlier than that. <laughs> See? <laughs> 1815. Exactly. Wow. 1815. See? I knew it all along. Um, and for some reason, like this person and other people that I've read, but I can't, so we might want to tease it out. I don't know why we'd want to tease this out actually at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. A couple things. One, what 
political events were shaking the world at the time. The War of 1812. Yeah, the War of 1812. Well, yeah, in America. And then also, who else was Britain fighting? So it wasn't just- France. Yeah, so you had Napoleon. What famous battle happened that same Waterloo. Yeah, Waterloo. I think he's looking. He's cheating. I'm not. Oh. So Waterloo happened then, and that means that this book, I don't know if she was imagining it taking place in 1815, but it would have been taking place at the same time War and Peace was taking place. Hmm. Historically speaking, which is kind of interesting. I never put those two things together before. That's interesting. But yeah, the whole all the events of war and peace were basic were happening around were happening around the same time as most of her novels, at hmm. least. So I feel um, like this is one of the novels that has the least of any sort of entry of the outside world or larger political context. Mansfield Park has some slavery talk and occasionally the soldiers you know, you kind of get a picture of them, but yeah, I'm curious as to, so this person here mentioned it. So I was browsing their introduction, the completion of Emma. Hang on. I got to get my glasses on. I'm becoming an old man. I am nightly in my old age. Right? Mm-hmm. The completion of Emma and the year of Waterloo has encouraged the discernment of political meanings in the novel. Is there an interesting word choice? Yeah. Encouraged the discernment. And again, the names have seemed significant to many readers. The obvious association between George Knightley and Englishness has led to the opposing equation of Frank Churchill and Frenchness. No, Emma, you amiable young man. Your amiable young man can be amiable only in French, not in English. Is amiable the pronunciation? Do people pronounce it amiable? Amiable is how I pronounce it. I've always said it amiable. Well, you know what? The world's full of frailty. Thy name is Brandon. <laughs> the world's full of color and life. <laughs> People say things different ways. You say tomato. I say tomato. You say amiable. I say amiable. One of my favorite SNL skits of all time was when Christopher Walken hosted and they had him sing that song. Yeah. But the joke was he was just reading it off the teleprompter. So yeah. he just said, you say tomato, I, I say, say tomato, tomato. Yeah, you say potato, I say, I say potato, tomato, tomato, potato, potato. And then his weird like Christopher, Christopher Walken yeah, dancing I, I can, voice. I cannot do a walking yeah. at all, but yeah, it was great. He's funny. He is funny. He had some of the better skits. Yes, he did. One of the greatest hosts of all time. Yeah, I agree with that. He and uh, Alec Baldwin. Sure. Yeah, Steve Alec, Martin. Alec Baldwin, Steve Martin. Both great. Mm-hmm. Where were we? Uh, yeah, so the author was saying Churchill is you French. Can discern political meanings. She's saying, almost well, she kind of disagrees. Though the next paragraph, though, you can read these significances into the names. They also hint that such readings are as absurd as the behavior that is gently being ridiculed in the novel itself. Huh? Well, I like that. Good for you. Because that, that? that that seems to be good. Who is this person? I like them. Claire Lamont. She's emeritus professor of English romantic literature at Newcastle University. She seems to have a sort of realistic view of what we can and can't read in. Because if this was like some of the professors I had at IU, they would be all over this. Like, let's read the political subtext. Because mm-hmm. even though Austin might not understand the political or sexual subtexts to the novel, all that matters is that we can read them and see the cultural identifiers that are within the piece. Oh, my goodness. And you're like, good Brief. At a certain point, it just becomes... Isn't it Fiona Stafford? It is Fiona Stafford, yeah. She's the one who wrote that. I did not think to look at the intro- the end of the introduction. I just looked at the Claire Lamont. There is Fiona Stafford. She's professor of English language and literature. Ooh, more important. Where? 
University of Oxford. Hey. So she's a bigger deal. She's a big deal. Her recent books include Local Attachments, Reading Romantic Poetry, and an edition of Wordsworth and Coleridge's Lyrical Ballads. By recent, they mean 2013. Okay. She's also edited Emma, A Casebook of Criticism and Pride and Prejudice, and is the author of Brief Lives, Jane Austen. It must be a series on Brief Lives. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, like it's not about people that died young. It's about, yeah, I'm dumb. It's like, here's a brief life. Uh, I'm it's dumb like, too, then I too. I, I assumed it was about people who died young. <laughs> brief, like, lives. brief lives. <laughs> Janice Joplin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I assume it's just briefly told lives. You know, like the, the Oxford has a whole series yeah. of little, like Very the Oxford. Short I'm, I'm guessing you're right, but still the irony is there that she also had a brief life. Yeah. And you're briefly encapsulated, briefly summarizing a brief life. Yeah. I wonder if it's even briefer than the other brief lives. Uh, probably one of the briefest. I mean, 42 is pretty young. Although it was, wasn't that young back then. All, no, the, but, all the ladies got married <laughs> at 12 years old, just like we think every woman should. We don't or, know just a whole lot about her. Yeah. We know it through one of her... Nephews wrote that book on her. Austin Lays. Yeah, and people can go back. I forget which episode. I forget which episode it was that we, I read that beforehand and we basically use that as the context. Mm -hmm. So we can go back to that. Yep. We can reference people back to old episodes. Right? We sure. don't have to reiterate everything. And we got a big catalog. I encourage people to take advantage of it. Yep. Oh, right. When was she How born? How many episodes have we done? I don't know. I think we may have missed an anniversary not too long ago. Oh, I'm sure we did. I've done a bad job of keeping track of the anniversaries I'm of late. I'm sure we did. Although we've slowed way down because we're not doing 12 or, yeah, 52 a year anymore. It's true. Oh, you know what? We haven't missed it. The Spirits did it all in one night. What is it? We are, the episode we are recording right now, gentlemen, is our 296th episode. Wow. Which means Anna Karenina will constitute our 297th and 298th episode oh no it should which, have been our 300th uh, well i'll tell you it'll be interesting is this this book and alien book and alarian i don't think we'll ever know what it was which means oh no we may have to do something about this uh, not that it's a bad book but go tell it on the mountain will be our 299th book episode and then right ho jeeves <laughs> <laughs> will be our 300th episode i think we should just do a uh, 300th episode bash like, yeah, we have some fun. Yeah, we could rank something. Yeah. Or a ranking. Should we just, you know what? You know what I think we should do? What? What do you think about this, Jake? What if we did the exact same thing here that we did on, that we're doing on Sanity at the Movies? For our 300th episode, let's all rank every book we've ever done. Sure. And then see what emerges from the collated data to be. I mean, we, we know, we kind of know. We know what the top three are. We, we know be. the top three, but that's. Maybe it'll just be boring, but it'll probably be fine. I, I could see some things sneaking on there. Brandon will be doing this privately, so he can make, um, yeah, some, he can rank something higher than the rest of us would. All right, I'll we'll be doing this privately. What do you mean? Um, I mean, we will each make our own list, and then we will collate the data. So, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I uh, mean, you could do it in public if you war want. and peace number one, right? It, uh, well, yeah, I know what's going to win, but. <sighs> Because me and Jake have a united front. Yep. I'm going to go for it too. Really? Yeah. You reading it right now? Yeah. It's better. Yeah. I, it's just better. But yeah, how, how deep Warren, are you in? Warren Peace is this close to being just as good. How deep into it are you? Huh? I just restarted it. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, I haven't gotten past Kitty and Levin. Well, I just got past Kitty and Levin's But I'm just disaster. mean from the, ver- from the very beginning with yep. the, the, oh man, what are their names? Stephen Arkadovich and all that. Yep. Yeah, yep. thank you. Stepan, however you say it. Yeah, Dolly. Stevi. Just that whole, the whole yeah. everything's just amazing. Yeah, just the the way that that guy's just it in It carries a, in you so dialogue. quickly through so many things and on such a, I'm, I'm right around... Uh, so it, in our version, I'm or like around page 180 or something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So we've already gotten through like adultery is happening. Uh, Stepan Arkadyevich has gone to visit Levin in the country and let him know that Kitty's sick and okay. uh, isn't getting married. And See. Levin's been really angry about the sale of property and really passive aggressive about it. And yeah. Meanwhile, Vronsky is about ready to tank all his time. Actually, I'm up to the horse. Yeah, he's about to have. I was a horse just wondering race. if the horse has happened yet. So, I couldn't remember whether that so happened he's before like, or after the consummation. Yeah, it happens after. Um, it's it's basically the next time we cut from the consummation to Levin, and then we cut back, and it's sort of like a brewing scandal. Mm-hmm. Like his mom is like past the point of this is not a the kind of thing that makes a young man, this is the kind of thing that breaks him. And all, all that stuff is sort of happening. And like, he's loved by the regiment, but he's passed a promotion to stay close to Anna and everything's getting ready to break. Wait. And now we're moving to the horse race and he's with his buddy. So you're a good distance into the book. But that's only page 175 for 180. Like, that book moves All that fast. stuff happens way faster than I remembered it happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always had the, yeah, if I was to peg the horse race, that'd be near the halfway mark. That's what I would have thought too, but that's all in the I first think it's just 200 pages. it feels like a halfway point. Mm-hmm. But that's just the beauty of the book. Like there's so much in it and, it, and it, it is such a good story that moves at such a good pace. Yep. Yeah. It's like, man, it is so good. It's incomparable. Yeah. And I'm sorry, but there's less of the idiosyncratic than there is in War and Peace. And I, I, I just don't need too many essays on the nature of war and history, history and memory and, and memory and I mean it's all interesting and Tolstoy just can't help but be compelling even when he's being boring but Anna Kay what a book what a book but we can't talk about that we got to talk about Emma which is also a book which is also a book also a great one uh where were we Brandon uh where were we Oh, published at the same time. Oh, in the same era as War and Peace would have been taking place. Oh, man. Okay. And somehow we got here. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and so also I was... So we have that cultural context that's happening in the War and Peace. That's just kind of fun, and the war is taking place, and apparently there may or may not be some connection to the names. But I think it's more interesting to note that, um, like this person was saying, that Jane Austen, she seems to write these stories that are both very much Edwardian or not Georgian England. Right. And yet at the same time, kind of timeless, like they seem to not really take place anywhere. Mm -hmm. They take place in this universal England. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that all these other places, like I guess the show Bridgerton is now the big new thing. Yeah. But they all try to, you know, they try to adopt some of that. And this novel in particular, apparently has even more locale than some of her other books, like um, the hill that they go to. When they have that failed adventure out into the woods, 
like the the badly done or no that's the pre badly done yeah that's where they all end up breaking into parties and like they can't make things congeal yeah mm-hmm. and stay together um that's an actual place and mm-hmm. so because of the miles they travel and the other places people know fairly well where this book was probably set in England hmm. more than other novels but even then there's this sort of generality like almost a made upness to her England that is just convenient for the location. Like location's convenient for the story she wants to tell. Right. So it has the general flavor of what England would have been like, but it has, she's not dependent on accurate geography. Mm-hmm. Right. She's made, she, the town here is made up. Right. Right. And so um, I thought that, I mean, and so I think that's, that's whoever wrote that essay, whatever her name was, Fiona Apple or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Wrote some great songs exactly too. Right. Yeah. Um, Fiona Stafford. Yeah, I think that what she's saying is is pretty spot on. Mm-hmm. That maybe there are, but they're more coincidental, or maybe they're a winking nod at the fact that sure, yeah, these things are influencing the story, but at the same time, it's funny that you care, right? Right? You know what I mean? Would Would Jane Austen herself have felt an existential threat from Napoleon during this time? I mean, you always read books set in France and set in Germany and stuff about the Napoleonic Wars. And you're like, yeah, these people, like, they're talking about it. It's on their mind. They feel, obviously. But you don't read books, or at least I haven't read books set in England, where it's really a big deal. Does does their across-the-pondness sort of allow them to... Be insulated? Be insulated. I mean, I think that, yeah, sure. There would have been some of her country, um, what would you call it? country nobility country manner life that she had mm-hmm. where it wouldn't have had a significant effect but i'm sure also she would have been hearing the stories of what was happening and uh, her brothers were in the military and so it would have been closer to home than we realized it'd be interesting do you have a volume of her letters uh maybe That's not, something not i me. don't for some reason have in my library mm-hmm. i should but yeah um i wouldn't be surprised if you were to scour some of those you could probably find Mentions of the war. Where, yeah, maybe some of them. just find it? On I, I have read her letters before. What strikes me is that they are very similar, but but more acidic. Actually, they're meaner. Yeah. That they're about it. They're 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 on par with the meanest stuff you'll f- find in her novels. Just her caricaturing her neighbors and her friends and yeah. people that she knows. And the other thing that stuck with me is that she has a weird, or perhaps not weird. I don't know how to categorize it or how it compares to other people from her time, but she's interested in death and the process of dying when someone dies she asks like what did the corpse look like did they have a calm expression on their face and when she's when her father dies she describes it's like it's a reoccurring kind of motif and maybe people were just closer to death than death happened in their homes instead of out of it and so they just were more plain spoken about it and more sort of just hey here's an interesting thing this person had a grimace when we put him in the ground um but that's just, it was just something very striking. Um, and then the third thing that's striking is that she loves her characters, knows her characters, and can give you details about what happened next, what Elizabeth Darcy is up to right now. Yeah. How many kids she has, that sort of thing. So, so there seems to be a, a whole Austin cinematic universe that she kept in her head. Yeah. But yeah, as far as mentions of, it seems like she's about what you'd expect. She's very domestic. She's very like her novels, she's focused on the here and now of her life. Yeah. And apparently, I mean, in the letters that she wrote, she does have some references to 
wars and things that are happening. Hmm. But I don't know if it was in the sense that it was some heavy weight that was, you get the idea that the romantics would have cared more. Right. Yeah. She was concerned enough with, it's kind of like Flannery O'Connor. I mean, Flannery O'Connor and Jane Austen are pretty close analogs. Hmm. Um, just in the lives they led. Right. Kind of quiet, isolated with their mother out right. in the middle of the country and very much concerned with the um, almost otherworldly observations they can make of other people. Yeah. Although Flannery O'Connor, the big difference is Flannery O'Connor's like, gee, I wonder what it would be like if my family was all drug into this, the woods and shot by a maniac. <laughs> Whereas yeah. Jane Austen is, it's in, in a way that almost annoys certain people, it's like she refuses to write about anything that's not firsthand experience of hers like she yeah, exa- yeah she will not follow her characters into the bedroom i mean obviously i don't mean sex scene wise i just mean like she will not follow them past marriage because she's not been married herself and so she's like i do not know what darcy and elizabeth talked about after they got married and how their my relationship Mrs. changed darcy. yeah <laughs> my Mrs. my yeah darcy. well the movie makers thought that they could prove upon that and and guess what that's the worst part they were wrong yeah Sorry, cheekbones. Although I feel like both of you guys have come around and decided that that movie is good. And maybe I, I don't remember what I think. Day I don't think day. it's good, but I don't think it's as bad as all that. No, I don't remember thinking it. Yeah. But anyways, to get back to this. Pull sorry. Get us back Pull your microphone a little closer, Brandon. Let's get us back on yeah. track, Nathan. Okay? Yeah, back on track. Um, what was it? I don't know how to get back on track. Where was the track? What were we saying? I think we need to lay some track and then send the train down it. Yeah, we were laying track, but I think as far as we had made it was that War and Peace happened at the same right. time. Right, 1815. Yeah. Oh, and then I <laughs> then I side-railed myself and then got side-railed again. We were reading some of her letters. Did they know about the war? Mm-hmm. Apparently she talked about the war, but it wasn't this heavy weight. <laughs> right. Because she was more concerned about her surround the people around her than the significance of war, uh, political events. Mm-hmm. Didn't really concern her. Right. All right. I thought it would be fun to just, this is something I wanted to do later, but let's just do it now. So this book was published in 1815, right? Correct. uh, Yeah, I wasn't actually looking for affirmation, but thank you. Hey, I like Um, validating you, Brandon. Thanks. Let's see. So uh, Percy Shelley was publishing some of his poetry, and so was Lord Byron and uh, William Wordsworth. So we were in the height of what would be called the romantic era of Mm -hmm. literature. And I want to come back to that later because off mic, we were having some conversations as to why do these novels seem, I mean, like you said, this, you, they don't, she she doesn't follow her characters after they get married, but there also seems to be a lack of like overt sexual charge to these books. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's there, it's under Mm -hmm. the surface, but like even. What's the opposite of overt? There's, there's a lot of. Subvert. Covert, covert subtext and sexual tension. Yeah, yeah. These books are sexually but charged, e- but especially like, this one, I'd say. But like, even the movies have to find ways to get it in there in ways that it isn't. Right, they always have the characters like, kiss when they, or he's coming out of a pond, or they're meeting each other in the rain. Right, so she, he, yep. they have to find ways to visualize it, mm-hmm. and she doesn't feel that need. It's almost like everybody kind of knows it's there. Like everybody in a Dickens novel, everybody knows that they all take baths and use the bathroom, but he never has to talk about how it's right. done. Right. While the romantics were all about it. They're mm-hmm. like, let's just let's just be bohemian and push the off it all and out tell there, everybody baby. because it's so edgy to tell everybody everything they already know. Right. Hey, it's all part of the human experience, which yeah. means it's all grist for the artist, Brandon. Yeah, let's just rub our noses in what nobody 
everybody knows is true, but nobody really feels like is necessary to point out. How did the hobbits go to the bathroom? We don't know. Yeah. Lord of the Rings is a stupid book. Yeah. How did they have little hobbit babies? We don't know. Yeah. Asexual and reproduction, S- I'm guessing. And Sam's thoughts of Rosie seem a little bit too pure. Can't we like edge it up a bit? Anyways, uh, in 1813, Pride and Prejudice was published. Mansfield Park was published in 1814. So this was her third book. Well, Sense. Didn't Sense come first? Apparently. Oh, Sense and Sensibility. This was her fourth book. Thank you. That was in 1811. I didn't go quite back far enough. Yeah, so in the 1800s, the, especially the 18-teens, really is dominated by the romantics. Mm-hmm. You also have Walter Scott writing in there, and he's one that gives an opinion on this book. I actually think it's the one that opens up the introduction of this novel. This version that we have. Yeah, he says, Walter Scott uh, found the book to have even less story than Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice, but nevertheless the less admired the author's knowledge of the world and the peculiar tact with which she presents characters that the reader cannot fail to recognize. So, Sir Walter Scott, despite not being a very good novelist mm-hmm. himself, knew one when he saw one. Yep. Mm, is that a hot take? That he's not a good novelist? Yeah. Does anybody like Ivanhoe? I like the story. Like, I've enjoyed watching movies of Ivanhoe, but reading it is a sludge. Yeah. Well, I, didn't, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there's somebody out there that's like a big Ivanhoe fan. Oh, we're getting one star, but we were going to do yeah, that. Yeah, anyway. I used to... I, I've tried, that's one of those books that I've tried like three times Same. Same. to read, and I just do not like it. Sir Walter Rott is what I call him. Yeah, and so over in America, you had his uh, his analog with old Fenimore Cooper writing as well at this time. Famously bad author. Yeah. Mark Twain is. Though a really hilarious Mark Twain essay. Yeah, Mark Twain has forever. Everybody should read that Pegged one. him. Okay, so yeah, so we're in the full swing of both like the pop reimagining of the Middle Ages and adventure stories with Fenimore Cooper and Walter Scott, and also the um, pushing the envelope with the romantics. Yeah, and the Gothic, all the Anne Radcliffe yeah, and the kind Gothic. of stuff. So E.T.A. Hoffman was writing sure at the time, and he would have definitely been a Gothic writer, right? Sure, Tales of Hoffman is a famous and work then, uh, of the supernatural. Probably the biggest thing that would have happened in literature in the 18-teens would have been Frankenstein. 1818. So three mm-hmm. years after Emma. It's just really bizarre. Uh, when Every time we do Jane Austen, it's, it boggles my mind that she was writing at the same time. She really time. feels like she's from a different world. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. writing at the same time as um, Mary Shelley. As Mary Shelley and as uh, Jane Eyre. When does Jane Eyre come out? I'm sure it's on here. Where is it? Uh, we've We've made this comparison before. It was a little bit later. Uh, 1847. So Jane Eyre is a yeah. good, not quite 50, but yeah. several decades quite a later. Bit, quite a bit later. Yeah. That'd have been in the swing of Dickens right there. Yeah. But in Dumas. Yeah, your Dickens Man, and your du- Brontes. And... Dumas, he was prolific. Yes, he was. Good grief. Well, he famously there. employed go- an army of ghostwriters, and so he would just basically so outline was, the novels. He was like the John Grisham of the 1800s. Yeah, or Patterson, I think, does that now. Uh, is it Patterson? Uh, yeah. I didn't know which one it was. I mean, I think a lot of them do it. But fact, pa- Patterson's the one I was thinking of. These days, it'll be like, a Tom Clancy novel. Yeah. And then in little print, it'll be like, written with Jake Menzel. And that means Jake Menzel just wrote it, but Tom Clancy put his name on it. But Jake Menzel's a ghostwriter for John Clancy? Yeah, I meant that example. Yeah, I, not huh. Not... Metaphorically, for many people, interesting. Yes. Um, Not allowed to talk about it, though. I mean, so allegedly, allegedly, my my friends can allege it. But, allegedly, yeah. I'm sorry, I let the cat out of the bag. Meow. Um, I can neither confirm nor deny. 
So yeah, so that's kind of fun to put her in context mm -hmm. liter with literary history. So you had the romantics in full swing. It wouldn't be too much later that you would have Dickens, mm -hmm. but she's not she's not as 1700s as we think. She was born in 1775, year of our independence. Mm -hmm. She famously well, we call that 1776 yeah, around here. Yeah. Sorry. We were just gearing up for it, though. We were gearing up for it. It's like in my favorite movie, Mel Gibson. What, what country are you from? Yeah, <laughs> it ain't the great state of, or great, great country of Texas either. No, no, because we were like squarely Mexican by that point. Can we just take um, a moment to remember the, mom, the moment the that Alamo? I always like to remember? In The Patriot by the, Mel, the great Mel Gibson uh -huh. classic, Heath Ledger plays his son. He comes up to the hot girl and he's like, can I sit here? And then she says, it's a free country or it will be. Mm. Ah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Even more fun is since we're talking about ghostwriters, <laughs> Jane Austen wrote the Independence be, Day speech uh, from Why be ruled by one tyrant a thousand miles away than, why is it better to be ruled by one tyrant a thousand miles away than a thousand tyrants one mile away? Who said that? It's a Mel Gibson line from that same movie, The Patriot. Oh, that's just the most quotable movie ever. Yeah. But you were saying Jane Austen wrote the Independence Day speech? Yeah, from the Independence Day movie. It's a good speech. Yeah, she's great. We will not go silently into that. I think Dylan Thomas wrote that speech. Uh, we're going to go on. Rage, we're going to survive. Against the dying of the light. You know who quotes that Dylan Thomas poem? Is Michael Caine in Interstellar. They use yeah, it like sure 14 does. times. That might. Another hot take. Do you know that, whose that might be name is poem. not Dylan, but yeah. stole his name from Dylan Thomas? Bob Dylan. Yeah, also known as... Robert Zimmerman. Robert Zimmerman. Yeah. Okay. As long as we're making tangential connections and doing let's word associations. Let's talk about... <laughs> Talking about World War Three blues. Let's talk... It's a Bob Dylan song. Let's talk... You can be in my dream if I can be in yours. Well, you know whose dream you can't be in? Bob Dylan said that. Jane Austen's because she's dead. <laughs> let's go back and talk about hey. her. <laughs> what? Jane Austen's not dead. She lives on. She lives on. She's going to survive. Today is our Independence Day. She lives on in her work. <laughs> she sure does. Oh, come on. That was a pretty good. That was a great you point. have to act like you have a sense of humor about that. Ah, <laughs> great. Now try acting with talent. All right. Academy Award goes Brandon. Uh, Thank you. So she was born in 1775. Guess what this has on the chronology in 1776, the American Declaration of Independence. Hey. Why? I don't know. Because it puts it in perspective. 1778, Francis Burney published Evelina. Brennan weighs 1,778 pounds. Thank also you. Also in, in one of his are you, thighs. Are you, are you guys going to watch <laughs> You guys going to watch The Whale? <laughs> You heard of this movie? Oh, yeah, the Brandon Chastain yeah. story starring <laughs> Brandon Fraser. Fraser. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I just found out, I just realized that's a Darren Aronofsky film. Yeah. It seems like a joke movie. Yeah, it looks like a piece of crap. I, I don't know. I've been watching a Darren Aronofsky documentary piecemeal. Which one? Limitless. The what? It's called Limitless. Oh. It's it's not good. He's a weird guy. Um. So, yeah, so she was born in 1775. Her dad was a reverend. Mm -hmm. I could have said that. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. Well, where were this, where was their rectory located? Oh, we spent a whole episode looking this place up. Eastonbury Blurg. Mm, really close. Steventon. Okay. And yeah, I'm sure I was right there. <laughs> <laughs> the family was... Right, true well, or false? 
being the contextual Texan has gotten a lot easier over time. Ah, <laughs> uh, and a lot more enjoyable. True. Oh, good. Yeah, true. Is it true? It's true. Exasperated, Brandon. Is Remember when flavors. I did my first um, contextual Texan? Contextual segment? Texan was one Jane Austen, and you told me I had five sentences to do it. That's right. And then you took fifteen. Yeah, but and the rest was history. It's because still a very short. It was short. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Relative to what it's become. Yeah. Yeah. This probably would be short if it weren't for all the yeah. tangents we go on. Almost as short as the amount of time it takes for the scale to break when you step on it. <laughs> Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Nate. Uh... <laughs> uh, folks, Brandon's lost so much weight. He's now the size of only one elephant. Right. Only one elephant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to say anything like that. So their family... We've talked about this before. Her mm-hmm. family would have been pretty much like all the families she writes about. Mm-hmm. Well-connected, had some money, but they weren't super rich. Right. right. And I mean, her brothers would go off and have some success. I think, well, right here it says two of her brothers entered the Navy and rose to the rank of rear admiral. <laughs> and we've talked plenty about her home life. They were a literary family. They were a lively family. They enjoyed putting on plays as children. So that goes to, is it Mansfield Park, mm-hmm. right? So there's some poking fun at her own family history there because that's such a central part of that novel is putting on the play that's taking place. But it's during this period that she would start writing some of her early work that got published, not by her, but posthumously. Mm-hmm. Juvenalia, I've never read any of it. Have you? That's nice crap. Well, that's should, could be expected. <laughs> Juvenalia. Right. Turns out if somebody didn't want to publish something, then it's Yeah, maybe good. it's for the best. Yeah. I mean, say one of us becomes famous. Would you want what nope. you wrote when you were 15 published? No. Never. Yeah, I'd want it be, to be burnt. I would barely want the thing that made me famous to be published. Let, I know. Alone the any things that came before it. Yep. So yeah, so... She attended school, too. I don't think we've ever talked about this or even looked it up. She mm. went to school with her sister, Cassandra, at the mm. Abbey School in Reading. It's interesting. That is interesting. Anyways, so she also, it's just all this time period, everything's so compressed. So you had the romantics, then you would have, so Dickens was born in 1812. You'd have the birth of Victorian literature, all that stuff. She was right on the cusp of all that. The French Revolution was taking the place, taking place at the same time. The birth of feminism was taking place in the 1790s with Mary Wollstonecroft's book, What is it? A Vindication of the Rights of Women. And her daughter was going to be the one that wrote Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And so it's just all, it's just really interesting how small this world was and how it all kind of takes place at the same time. Well, if I remember correctly, Vindication in the Rights of Women was written in response to either, I think, I want to say Rousseau. So yeah. it's like all these cultural grenades are being thrown and the whole world is changing. Yeah. And so you have that. But then also in the literary landscape, Anne Radcliffe, who you had mentioned with the Gothics. Mm-hmm. So she wrote the mystery. Well, you tell me what she wrote. Mystery of Udolfo. Udolfo. Can I, I cannot pronounce it. Udolfo. Have you ever read it? I've tried. It's 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 long flowery descriptions and cheese, yeah. cheese ball. I mean, it's 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 bad. Yeah, and entertaining so but bad. That was and that would contain elements. I mean, it's pop literature and that contains some elements of the illicit, mm-hmm. right? And then so with the romantics, with what they wrote. And so here she comes, and this is the literary landscape that she's in, the cultural landscape that she's in. And she kind of has a unique voice, a unique genre. She just does her own thing. Yeah, there's not really anybody that's kind of writing what she's writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it, it is interesting. But when you start laying out what was 
I mean, I don't know. Have you ever read Francis Bernie? I'm no. not even sure I could tell you what a Francis Bernie novel, what the flavor of one is. Maybe you should go look that up real fast because that would be interesting. But, and she obviously, even though politics don't necessarily enter into her novels, she's culturally aware because like the Anne Radcliffe, well, that's interesting to mention is because it comes into play with um, Northanger Abbey, right? When mm-hmm. she's making fun of these books. And so, and she also is making fun of people who are too highbrow to read books. Right. Which book was that one in? Was that Mansfield Park? Where Uh, she has that whole essay kind of where she's tongue in cheek criticizing fiction. And then she kind of turns it on its head and criticizes those people who would be criticizing fiction. It's either Mansfield Park or Northanger. It's one of my favorite things that she's done. Yeah, it's great. We'll get Um, back around to it one of these years. And so, yeah, and the Napoleonic Wars are happening. So this is just a really rich part of history. And yet here she is, quiet little Flannery, or not Flannery O'Connor, good grief. (laughs) Quiet little Jane Austen in her little country home, putting up with her nieces and nephews, being a good aunt Mm -hmm. from what her nephew wrote years later, and finding time throughout the day to write masterpieces because she's really good at observing. I mean, she so she would have had a social life. They moved around a bit as her father uh, went from rectory to rectory. Then eventually he died and they fell in some hard times. And then the last part of her life would be, she would take just taken care of by one of those brothers who became an admiral, right? That's kind of a general yeah. gist of how her, her, her. She was always, even though her brothers did move up and she was go- always going to be comfortable. I think I've definitely heard people say it is particularly poignant. Mr. Knightley's defense of Miss Bates, because that is the life that Jane Austen was kind of looking at that. Hmm. Yeah. She was always going to be for like a couple years there, right after, down. right after their father's death, yeah. things weren't going too well. And then their brother took care of them. And even then, um, I don't think things were like ever back to the point where they were with her father. Right. And so her trajectory was definitely towards being more poor and less comfortable as she got and older. She was a spinster. She knew she wasn't going to get married at some point. Yeah. And it's not because this was by choice. There are reasons to believe, even though her family protected her by burning quite a few of the letters that would have revealed anything about it. And this guy, I forget his name. Um, I was just listening to a podcast about him, and I completely forgot his name. But he was a lawyer in the same town she was in at the time. They met at some balls because she had the life of one of her no- heroines from one of her novels. She would go to balls. She would meet people. They would have people over at their house. And so this guy became involved in her life, and most speculate that they fell in love, but that because of circumstances, he was pulled away from her and became an important judge in London later on in his life. Hmm. But um, that is- He's important now, sucker. Yeah, yeah. You, you did. Yeah. Apparently people called him like he was really boring later in his life. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting story to be told there. Like maybe he became sad and boring because of who he his loss. married mm-hmm. or who he didn't marry. Yeah. Anyways, and there are reasons to think, th- I mean, there, there, are all, there are reasons to speculate about all sorts of things. You also have like critics who speculate that she was a lesbian. Sure. Right. Of course and, then, and then, uh, I don't know, can I say this? There was a famous essay going around when I'm back in early grad school days, like they were decoding all the the masturbation imagery in mm-hmm. all the books, which is apparently just all over the place. You're just missing it, Nathan. Sure. So the nice thing about modern academia is that it is basically word association games. And so yeah. if you find something that reminds you of something else and yeah. it's a thing that you're interested in writing about, then you can just then you can just find it there. Find some fancy language so, to say there's a thing in Jane Austen that reminds me of the thing that I'm interested in. 
Yep. And then you can just talk about the thing. I mean, even as old, I know I complain about this every Jane Austen episode, but that stupid Virginia Woolf ep- essay. Room of her own. It's not a, well, the essay is in a room of her own, although she does talk about Jane Austen. But there's another Jane Austen oh, essay right. she wrote where she's she spends the whole time talking about the novels that she speculates Jane Austen would have written had she lived past 42 and saying, here are the seeds of everything that we see in persuasion, the ways that she's changing. And wouldn't you know it, Jane Austen, if she'd lived, she would have written novels a lot more like the kind that Virginia Woolf liked and thought that she should have written. And so it's just complete speculation. And it's a famous, well-regarded essay. And it just, it boggles my mind. Like there's no... It's just dumb. It's just yeah. dumb. It's just thought association. There's there's no there's no argument there. It's just hey, I bet if Jane Austen had lived, she'd be more like me. Yeah. How do you know? She would have probably been a fan of Texas too, because her name was Austin. Mm-hmm. And so mm. the greatest city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she probably would have moved to Texas and become a very bar- progressive town. Probably so. changed the spelling of her name even right. yeah. to match. Yep. Learn how to cook brisket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just like Jane Austen, the city of Austin is like a progressive bastion and surrounded yeah. by conservative. Con- oppressive conservatives. Oppressive yeah. conservatives. Yeah. I mean, as Darcy says, keep it weird. Mm-hmm. So. Amen. <laughs> That's why you don't marry Lord Borington, the yeah. judge. That's right. So, yeah, other than these things, there's even though we have letters and we have books about her, so we know more about her than we know like about Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Like we know that she existed at least. Right. <laughs> Um, I think she was really Francis Bacon. Yeah, she, she was. Everybody was Francis Bacon. <laughs> My parents got a pig, mm-hmm. and so I convinced them to name him. His name is uh, Sir Francis Bacon. Nice. Yeah, I was, I was hoping that that would be the connection <laughs> yeah. and why you brought it up. <laughs> um, the only Francis Bacon worth remembering. Have you eaten Francis Bacon? No, they're not going to eat him. Oh, he's just like a pet pig. Yeah, he's funny. Hey, why did you say that he's the only Francis Bacon? Per- I like Francis Bacon. Those are fighting words, Brandon. That was, a, that was an unnecessary hot take. <laughs> if you want to read early essays. That wasn't even a hot take. Yeah. That was just me being cantankerous. Yeah. Cantankerous. I like Francis Bacon's essays. Mm, I like bacon. Yeah. Um, you do? <laughs> oh, man. Where were we? 1850. I'm just kind of rambling now. <laughs> but maybe it's mildly interesting rambling. <laughs> yes. It, it beats Mrs. Bates. That's what we pay for, man. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, there we have it. Mm-hmm. That's that's her. We don't know a whole lot about her, but we do get the feeling she's one of those rare authors that you feel that even though she has this style that she um, spearheaded of the free and direct where she goes in and out of her character's perceptions, right? Sometimes you can't quite tell whether something's from Emma's perspective yeah. or from the authorial You do get the sense that you know who Jane Austen is by just reading one novel. Yeah. And you get a sense of how it would have been to sit down and talk to her the sort of observations she would have made, the sort of wit she would have had. Um, there was one quote that I saw somewhere that she said it wasn't, it might've been in here. Yeah, Austin claimed not to write for such dull elves as have not a great deal of ingenuity themselves. A little poem that she wrote, apparently. You gotta be is, smart to read her books. Yeah, in other words, to get all the nuances because mm-hmm. she likes to have wordplay and stuff like sure. that. And that is all over the book. But there's also, I mean, there's a reason that They've got this undying quality to them and that everything like Bridgerton and what's the other one that was famous for a while? Not Downtown Abbey. Yeah, no. All of these are trying to be Jane Austen, right? They're all trying to do what she does and failing miserably. I don't think anyone's ever done it. I don't think anyone's ever come close. No. 
And so, and this was all, and and it's just really funny watching, and we talk about this every time, but it's funny watching all the critics trip over themselves trying to find a way to justify that this these books could have come from such a humble person. Mm-hmm. And it, we it, we always end up back the same place. It's well, why do we have to think that craft has to come from like some mad genius in an attic, right? The mad woman in the attic, or the woman with a room of her own. It can come from a just a cheerful, happy woman who was happy with her home life, was happy to play with her nieces and nephews, and when she could find time to write in the evening mm-hmm. or early in the morning, whenever it was she wrote. I mean, there's just as much legitimacy to that outlook. That just so happens to be, though, a conservative Christian outlook sure. on what creativity can look like as opposed to the angst-ridden stuff that produces things like that was the passenger have we already right. probably yeah like that thing right yeah and i would much rather have the healthy jane austen with a happy life who doesn't feel like she needs to go and make much of herself like a charlotte bronte right mm-hmm. and then produces these right yeah. i don't need I, I i would much rather have jane austen's producing emma's than i would charlotte bronte's producing jane Eyre's. that's well, a superior work of art i mean yeah it's just Look, Jane Austen wasn't perfect. Read her letters, you'll see she's pretty prickly. She could be mean. You read her novels, and you'll see she was pretty prickly, and she could be mean. I'm sure she was irritated sometimes when she had to put away her papers to play with her stupid nieces and nephews. I mean, you can see that in these books. There's there's little things like, oh, the kids are here again. She could probably make each one of us cry. Yeah, probably. She'd have something mean to say. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to know what feelings are hurt just thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want. Her assessment of your character? Yeah. Nope. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Do you want to know who you would have become in one of her novels? Not nope. nightly. <laughs> yeah. I don't who, think. How would she have decided to present you? Mm-hmm. Don't would... want to know. Yeah. Too painful. Yeah. That's what the judgment day's for. Jake's one of her rector <laughs> characters. She always does so much for them. Yeah. That's uh, right. Oh There's my... one of them that's pretty good. Mansfield yeah. Park. Yeah. I guess the hero of Mansfield Park and becomes a rector, right? Yeah. It is yeah. interesting to wonder what kind of relationship she had with her dad. <laughs> <laughs> I think she had a good relationship. I, I with think her she dad. did too. I think she just a couple of her brothers met. became rectors too. Yeah, I think it's because living in that world, she got to meet a bunch all of the posers. varieties of rectors that there could possibly right. be. Well, she's and just, she had one that she thought was pretty hilarious and needed to be blown to the moon, and she proceeded to do it several times. Yeah, yeah. The man, wouldn't it be funny to see what she would do with the reformed world? Painful. It would be painful, but it would be so funny. <sighs> anyway, that's that's a little aside there. Jane Austen, what a gal. What a gal. Um, oh, I guess we should talk quickly about publication. Sure. Uh, so she she started writing early versions of her stories in the late 1790s. Famously, you had Sensibility, which in its earliest stage was Marion and something, right? Marion and Suzanne. Marion and Suzanne, yeah. And then... You had Pride and Prejudice, earliest instance was First Impressions. And then they would, she would meet What's-His-Face, the publisher who she would work with quite a bit, because eventually she would buy the rights back to her stories from him. Anyway, she met him, I think, through her brother. Her brother encouraged this, right? Hmm. And she got Sense and Sensibility published. It was mildly popular. Pride and Prejudice was even more popular. And then she, then Northanger Abbey was that the one that came next, or Mansfield Park? It was Mansfield Park. No, Northanger Abbey and Persuasion were both published posthumously. So Mansfield Park, and then Emma, it would be her bestseller, 
And it was also the one that um, she dedicated to the Prince Regent because at that point he had become a fan and um, she had been advised that she should dedicate it to him. Fairly good publication um, relationship with her publisher, but this one she chose to publish a little differently. She bought out the rights so that she could keep them, but in return for him printing and distributing the book for her, she gave him 10% of the profits. Never made her rich. Mm -hmm. And she was respected by the literary community, but they all kind of... The thing in the air at the time was the the birth of romanticism and all this. So all the professors were taken up by other things. You see it in, even in Sir Walter yeah. Scott's praise of her. Yeah. He's like, her plots are so small. Nothing exactly. happens. Like, what yep. what is this book even about? And he's wrong. There's actually oodles of plot in any Jane Austen. There's reversals. There's yeah, and so it would take, people who want things. It would take a while for the world to come full circle and realize that she was as great as she was. Kind of like what happened with Shakespeare. I mean, it happened quite a bit. It takes a great literary scholar or a critic to really defend this person and show everybody, here's what you should be. This is why they should be in the canon and why you should be reading them. And she would always have her admirers. She never went completely out of print, but she wasn't as um, respected as she should have been at first. There's a guy named G.H. Lewis who wrote a series of essays praising her in the 1880s, and she still at that point had completely had her... Um, moment. And so it would be in the early like 1900s that she would come and now she's a part of the canon. So there you go. Yep. It could happen to you folks. Good. A hundred years, 200 years after you're dead. Right. <laughs> well, what's that sound? It's the baggage plane flying over. I guess we already kind of said some of our baggage and that we're old, but what other baggage do you bring to this novel? Jacob. <clears throat> Second time I've read this one. Um, read all of Austin's other novels at this point and read Pride and Prejudice probably three or four times. And so I was really looking forward to, this is the second Austin novel I'd ever read. So I read Pride and Prejudice. And when I came to Emma, um, I hadn't built up quite as much trust for Austin yet, had the opportunity to. And one of the bits of context that we didn't have is that Austin about Emma and about writing Emma said that she wanted to write a heroine that nobody could like except for herself. Mm -hmm. And I felt that very much from the beginning. The first time I read Emma, like I just did not like Emma. And we kept living with Emma being somebody I didn't like for a really long time. And it got to the point where I was just like, does Austin really like this person? And she's not going to like undergo or feel like she needs to undergo any kind of redemptive change or is she like having fun with her? Should I be like mocking her? Should I, should I, am I supposed to like Emma and I don't, or do I just, am I not supposed to like Emma and it's funny? Like I had some difficulty and I, I accepted this point, especially on the second read, that, that was just my problem. Mm -hmm. But that was my first read of it back in the day. So I was really looking forward to coming to Emma with greater context on Austin and a greater understanding of the story and where it's going to go and, and really be able to ask the question. Cause I know that you've wanted to make the case, um, or always tempted to make the case and maybe that this is actually her masterpiece. That this is actually her best. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to be open to that, um, this go around. So I was, I came to it open to the idea that this might, uh, that you might be right, that this might actually be her, her masterpiece. Um, if that's the case that you actually like 
you toy with it and and it may be part of you we'll talk about it later i'm mm-hmm. sure seems like part of you really feels like that and then part of you is like well i think that that might be a little personal and objectively i guess i have to acknowledge pride and prejudice yes. um so i i i came prepared to or at least open to that that possibility so that's sort of the way i approach this one mm-hmm. and i remember that i i remember even before we recorded our first batch of episodes on this i remember just talking to you about it or texting like i watching you go through the whole process the the five st- stages of emma denial acceptance all that stuff i just remember you being like like what is this cuz we'd had such a strong fun time doing pride and prejudice and i think you'd already read yeah, that and twice yeah yeah i had and i and that was our first podcast maybe three so times yeah. even and and i had loved that book from page 1 yeah like i just really like took to pride and prejudice like i hadn't taken to a book before it and the only books i've taken to since on that level are Anna Karenina and War and Peace. Right. And those are my top three. Um, so I was hoping and expecting a similar kind of experience. And instead, uh, we just spend so much time with, uh, or at least from my perspective at the time, so much time with this unlikable sort of brat. Mm. That was just... I remember you being actively irritated. I remember you texting yeah. me and saying like, this book should be five chapters long. Mr. Knightley just needs to put her over her knee and, or his knee and that should be the end of it. And this is like, why, why am I being subjected to this? And you're not like an aggro, you know, you're not always right. texting me like, why isn't the little lady in such and such a thing being put in her place? Yeah. But you why were, did we live so long? Like, why are we such living an with, unlikable character? Yeah. yeah. It was very much my initial feeling. And I also remember you thinking it took a while for this one to get going. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I've, I felt the same way. That's how I felt. That's a well. Like I guess, that read. I guess we'll get there, right? In a bit as to whether. Mm, now you're like it never got going. What's uh, yeah, so? This well, is the worst book I've ever read. Yeah, the worst. Is this the, the worst book you've ever? What, what's your baggage, Brandon, for this time? And always. Oh, I mean, my baggage is I'm coming to this now at the age of nightly. Mm-hmm. And that changes everything. Sure does. Uh, even yeah. my perception of where it stands in her. Well, yeah, I guess um, it's worth me repeating just to interrupt that. Yeah, I'm I'm nightly's age, and I have a daughter who's thirteen. The age. That Emma fell in love with Knightley. Yeah, and so I've got both of those things going the on. Age that Knightley fell in love with Emma. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's what I meant. Yeah, it, cha- it changes it. It makes it. Well, every <laughs> book changes as you age, but I think Austin, even even apart from that dynamic, which we've already talked about, Austin changes a lot as you, and because yeah, it's about young it's, love. The, all the books in their way are about young love, and except for it, persuasion. If you're waiting for that. That's one experience of reading the books. If you're experiencing that, it's one experience. That's one experience of reading the books. If you're past that, it's one experience of reading the books. If you're long past, I mean, if you're looking, yeah. if you see yourself as Elizabeth and Darcy, that's one thing. If you see yourself as Elizabeth's father, like if you're sort of paternalistically regarding the characters, that's it's just a much different experience. Yeah. And I think we're all there now. I mean, it'll be fun when we're the age of Mr. Bennett. When we're doing this in our 30s. Maybe. Year. Maybe we'll start to resent Austin more as we become crotchety old people. That's I don't true. know whose number she has, but and, what, yeah. a, what other baggage do you have? It'll be interesting to come back to persuasion at our age. Yeah. I am looking forward to that. Yeah. I mean, I read all these novels in my teens, I think, like yeah. well before I even had a chance. And I think this I, was, so as far as my baggage goes, I yeah. think this is one of the ones that I hadn't read before I saw the movie of it. Mm-hmm. And so my movie, my, view of the book was always 
Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth Paltrow. And so it was. it's a very different book than it is a movie. Mm-hmm. I guess I should say, too, that if you're going to talk about movies infecting your reading of a book, yeah, I definitely <laughs> have Claire Danes as Emma and, oh, yeah. and Paul Rudd as George Knightley. But not Claire Danes. Alicia Silverstone. Oh, Alicia Silverstone. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. But yeah. There is, is, is it Emma, the new one? They got the remake. Yes, they just did one in 2020, I think, with um, What's-Her-Face, the hotness of the moment, um, Anna Taylor-Joy. Yeah. And I actually thought it was not the novel, but a pretty fun movie if you could get yourself out of the novel's headspace. Yeah, we saw it. It was funny. Yeah. It's not Emma, but it's It's about as good as Gwyneth Paltrow's. Yeah. Probably more enjoyable than Gwyneth Paltrow's. The one thing that Gwyneth Paltrow's version get is Alicia Silverstone's. Miss Bates is pretty good in that movie. Uh, So... The reason Gwyneth Paltrow might win, even though who wants to give a prize to Gwyneth Paltrow, is because she does have the best badly done yeah. Emma speech by far. I actually watched a yeah. montage where somebody put together all three of them. Yeah. And um, Jeremy Northam is pretty good. As- well, he's the only one that actually feels like he has it in for her. The other, the, yeah. the guy in the TV version is like real apologetic and he's much younger. He's like almost age appropriate for her. And then the, the new guy, the Anna Taylor Joy guy, he's fine, but. And then Rudd is pretty lame. That is the yeah, one. Is that lame, is the yeah. one failing of yep. Clueless. Yep. Silverstone doesn't get a chance to quite do the redemption yep. that the real Emma does. But hey, it's you true. can enjoy Clueless as a thing, and then you still have the novel Emma that you can enjoy as another thing. So, yep. which is how it should be done. Has, which is how it to be done. Yeah, but Mrs. Mrs. Bates in the in the badly done scene from Paltrow is the winner. Yeah. Sure. No. Yeah. yeah. Easy. easy. And well, since that's the scene that makes the book. Yeah, it is like. You then it's the uh, scene that makes the movie. And so. And because they also found a Miss Bates, the actress does a good job. She both makes her kind of. Oh, yeah. You, you almost can see tear how up you, with she's her. She's so pathetic you, yeah. and so sweet. You can sweet. see how you would never want to be around this woman, mm-hmm. but you would also never want anybody to be mean to her. Yeah. She's one of that. She's well, it's such a deft bit of writing on Jane Austen's part that y- you could. It's, Emma's not being too mean like you understand that she thinks she can get away with it you, you've done things like that in your life maybe you've seen people do things and yeah. either get away with them or not like it's just the perfect she crosses a line but it's a line that a lot of people would cross and it's a very easy line to cross and it doesn't yeah, it's always funny it can be funny when those things happen and they're also very instructive Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they form your character. Yeah, well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I've I've been there. I'm still able uh, to put myself in Emma's shoes. My son Elliot just got one of these moments. We were at a formal choir rehearsal performance by his siblings, and Jack was up there performing. And Jack looked terrified, like he didn't want to be up there, like he wished he could be doing anything else. And so Elliot thought he would be supportive. And after it was all over, he yelled out, "Yeah, Jack!" And just the whole thing was just icy silence. <laughs> like nobody responded. Nobody <laughs> laughed. Nobody did anything. <laughs> yep. <laughs> just like, yep, you just learned that there are different Yeah, you gotta learn places that you don't do that. Yeah. Yep. 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 I remember a situation, I was probably just five or six, but it's like I just didn't understand that you put your hand over your heart for the Pledge of Allegiance. You think you're having a heart attack. Yeah, no, I was doing something stupid and somebody was I don't even want to talk about it. But any other baggage? I mean, I don't know, man. Probably, but no. Yeah. yeah um I liked the movie, and then when we read it last, I was with Jake. It took took a little while to get into it, but mm-hmm. this, I'm not going to say yet what I'm reading. Yeah, we'll get to Big Picture in a second. 
My baggage is that my second daughter was just born. Her name is Emma Joy. She is named after this novel. I love this character. I love pre-redeemed Emma even. Um, although having named my daughter, evaluating that that way this time through, I was like, oh, man, she is terrible. She is not very likable. <laughs> but hey, <laughs> it all works out. I mean, this is one of my favorite books. It always has been. I, I relate to it. Not just. I mean, yes, this time coming to it, I was feeling more like a Mr. Knightley or something. You know, I was looking at it from that vantage and it was interesting. But also, I think one of the reasons I've always keyed into it so much is because, eh, you know, I've had my badly done moments where I'm Emma and they've been helpful. And I I like that. That that just captures something about my life, about the way people have improved me. So I, but th- then on the other hand, I think it's probably, I think I can go ahead and say, and she won't mind that I am a, about 10 years older than my wife. So if you go back and you listen to the Mansfield Park episode, number four, I think it is, of that series, at the end, I'm like, hey, guys, who should I marry? I think I'm going to marry a Fanny. And you guys are like, no, nah, Elizabeth would be good. Why don't you marry an Elizabeth? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, something, someone quiet and demure. demure for me. That's what I'm into, which shows that I had about as much self-awareness as the average Jane Austen <laughs> hero or heroine at the beginning of the novel. Yeah. Because, <laughs> boy, I did not go for any of the demure ladies that I could have. But when Meredith came along, who was young and vibrant and talkative and argumentative and all that sort of stuff, she lit up my world and I went for it. And you dared with daring. I dared with daring. I knew I was being daring, but I just couldn't live without her. So I went for it and... She might have been Elizabeth. Maybe you were Darcy. Yeah. Well, that was my pickup line. I, I, you can listen if you want to hear that story. I think I tell it on the Midnight Children episode because that book played in our romance. So yeah, you, yeah, yeah, you yeah. can hear. Surely the Surely you've told it on the latest Pride and Prejudice one too. Yeah, maybe. Probably. I don't know. I, I tell it at length with all the details. I mean, Whose who's love story doesn't include Midnight's Children? Very few people. <laughs> You always want, if you want a good love story, it's got to have Pride and Prejudice and Midnight's Children. Yeah. And me and my wife have a combative relationship. We like to spar. It's a lover's quarrel, as Chesterton says, but I don't think she'd mind me saying that. So there's a lot about Knightley in it. Without casting myself as Knightley or casting herself, her as, as bratty as Emma, there's a lot that we can relate to and enjoy about this book. And we love Battle of the Sexes stories for that reason and just get a big kick out of we'll watch a movie or something and I'll be rooting for the guy and she'll be rooting for the gal and it's romantic and it's fun. And that's why you love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's why I love, yeah, I'm rooting for Leatherface. She's rooting for Sally. Yes, I know the name of the heroine of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) We all have a past except for George Knightley. So you are better looking than Jeremy Northam too. Yeah, obviously. And my wife's better looking than Gwyneth Paltrow. So... Yes, my life has mirrored this. I am not rich. I am not perfect. I am not a knight in shining armor, but there's a lot of stuff that's personal to me about this book, enough so that my second daughter was named after it. So, although we don't call her Emma, we call her MJ. So, after your second favorite story, after my second favorite story, Spider Man, Spider Man, right? Combine my two favorite things. That's not true. I mean, I, I, I like Spider Man, but. Best thing the Marvel Universe has going for it. But I love MJ. That's that's not true. You made it creepy, Nathan. Um, So I don't know what else to say. We're getting into big picture already. So, All right. Here we go. We're entering into the big picture. Here we are. 
in the big picture. In the big picture. We talk big, big, big picture thoughts from this reading, gentlemen. Putting in our radio goggles like in Willy Wonka. That's what this room is like. It's big and white. Yeah. Mm. We're getting Mike TV is going to be transformed yeah. into a stretch, just stretchy out little dude or whatever. Into a little guy that needs to be stretched out. That's what I meant to say. Unexpectedly controversial take on Roald Dahl that we had. We did. Didn't we just like it? Yeah. That's all that mm-hmm. we had to do was like it. Yep. Roald Dahl's great. He hates humanity. He hates bratty kids. He hates fat, <laughs> oppressive women. And apparently the Matilda yeah, that's mus- awesome. Apparently yeah. the Matilda musical is supposed to be pretty good. Matil- guys- yeah, I'm excited. Have you guys watched it? I, I, I don't no. think it's out anywhere, but I'll, I will watch it. And Did I you guys watch the weird game of the Toro Pinocchio? I've no, watched about half of it. I, uh, it's bizarre. It is bizarre. Yeah, I well, think I I think I like it, but I'm not oh, sure. I, it's yeah. good, but it's just strange. My problem with it is Pinocchio. I'm not sure I like him very much, but yeah, the it's worth finishing. Yeah, but it's got the Guillermo del Toro strangeness too. Yes, yes, yes. It certainly does. I'm I'm glad to be watching it, but my wife tapped out. It was too creepy for her. So, and I said, "Badly done, Meredith." And she said, "I don't care." And then go to bed. Those, what's the movie where they hold his eyes open? Oh, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, you Clockwork Orange her. <laughs> yeah, I Clockwork Orange her. I strapped her to a chair and I put a device that held her eyes open because that's what the nightlies do to the elves yeah. of the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, big picture. Yeah. Um, when I said extrapolate what you will, it's personal. What I meant was that my life is Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I just want to make that clear to everybody. <laughs> that's what we all thought. And the reason I enjoy this book is because I back read a bunch of creepy BDSM stuff into it. Yeah, you, okay. you have your own... Um, fanfic you've written about all this yeah hey i'm sure somebody's done it oh boy but, uh, without, right, we're, without, supposed be, we're supposed to be talking about without imputing the novel it is a novel that would invite somebody to do that yeah i wouldn't it wouldn't be surprising to me if whoever whatever idiot wrote 50 shades of grace said they were inspired by emma wouldn't be surprising to me at all no they were inspired by twilight yeah i know that but well, although not really, because my understanding of Fifty Shades of Grey, I've not read it. I've not seen any of the movies, but isn't she like a mousy little thing? And he's like the guy that comes along and I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think that's more like the fantasy of saving, figuring all this up for when we do Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah, when we finally, yeah. our 300th episode, we have it. <laughs> no, I think that's more like nobody ever noticed me. And now big, strong man comes along. Yes, there's a little bit of that where, but Emma's a very noticeable lady, whatever else you want to say about her. Big picture thoughts. Did yeah. you say them yet? Did anyone say no, anything? I'll, I'll I'll start. I came open to this being Austin's best novel and am confirmed in my opinion that it's not mm-hmm. confirmed in my opinion that Pride and Prejudice is the best, at least so far. So I was not persuaded. I see what you did there. Thanks. Um, that... It's superior. In fact, I was persuaded that it is not superior. It's a great book, great novel, great fun, but doesn't just doesn't pop start to finish the way Pride and Prejudice does. You can say that it has better moments. You can say that the badly done scene has better moments. You can say that Knightley is better than Darcy. There are a lot of things that you can't argue, I think, but I think it's really hard to make the case that from start to finish in terms of story, propulsive narrative, plot, humor side characters, everything all together that ends up being a better a better novel. So I'll I'll go ahead and stake that put plant that flag and we can we can argue about that later. Would you, you agree with that. me that these are the two that belong in the conversation and nothing else that Austin wrote does? Yeah, I think so. Although um I want to approach each successive novel Give it the same chance. And yeah. give it the same chance to be in the conversation. But yeah. But I don't think any of them will make a case for themselves the way that 
The only one that no, would I don't. come close to Sense and Sensibility. That's what a lot of people would say, although we famously, for whatever reason, maybe it was just how it was ordered with the other books we were doing. I think it came off of War and Peace. We didn't have as much fun with that one as a lot of as I think I expected us to. I think it's missing the central interesting guy. Yeah, Willoughby, he's great when he's played by Alan Rickman, but he's not. You mean Brandon? Yeah, Colonel Brandon. Sorry, Willoughby's the bad guy. Um, yeah, you don't really have a compelling male lead in that one that you get to spend any time with. Yeah. And I, what, I, what I thought you were going to say was that Mansfield Park is the other one, but that's just never, I mean, it's just not a crowd pleaser. Yeah, I can't. I mean, as much as we enjoyed it, at least on first read, mm-hmm. it, it it can't really be part of the conversation. For you, you could say it's the deepest. You could say it has some of the most spiritually profound moments. You could say all kinds of things like that, but the academic answer is persuasion. Yeah, well, to all the academics. Academics like persuasion and uh, women who are 30 and missed the boat on something like persuasion, and that's fine. I'm not knocking. And that's probably because they all see themselves in that. Well, yeah. That's uh, what you were saying. That's I what I was it. saying. Um, but they're all weird spinsters with um, their greyhounds. Well, a lot of. In their office. Yeah. That's, their Brandon, you, you joke bonnets. all you want. But what I was actually trying to say, but I didn't know how to say it in a way that I'm wouldn't talking sound about a particular professor at TCU that I had. Okay, that's fine. You 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 yeah. get her, get her sick. Bonnie Blackwell. Yeah, she's not listening. She's in your listen. face, more like Bonnie should be sacked from the university. Yeah, no, nah, she's fine. Well, I had I had good memories from TCU. It was a good school. Um, Go on frogs, power no. the hypnotoad. Woo. There are what's what's another word for spinster? There are godly older women who didn't end up getting married who really find something Maidens. sweet and cathartic about persuasion and it helps them process their lives. And I don't begrudge them that any more than I begrudge someone who missed the boat on a great career or so they feel processing their life through it happened a wonderful life or it happened a wonderful life. A wonderful <laughs> life one night. It's a wonderful life. The Great Gatsby. The Great Gatsby. Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> But I think objectively speaking, Persuasion's not nearly the novel. But I, I think there's three where she was at the height of her powers, and it's Pride and Prejudice, Emma, and Mansfield Park. Like her writing well, is. Since we are not women and we can't speak from the feminine perspective, I don't know if we have a right to say which one is the best. I don't even know why we're podcasting. Yeah. How dare we? One star. One star. I'm a woman. For existing. I say I'm a woman. I'm a trans woman. Mm-hmm. Oh, we got cred now. Yep. And I'm black. Woo! Pronouns are got even more cred. Yep. Me and they call me. Nope, not gonna say a joke. Black lady name because that'll somehow cross do the line. Do not. Yep. Do that. Don't call me Shaniqua or anything like that. Not gonna do it. Not gonna suggest it. All right. So where were we? Big picture. Jake said his big picture, which is it ain't pride and prejudice. It ain't pride yeah. and prejudice. I think that I'm gonna be. I mean, I feel like this is. We'll be litigating this when we get to Anna Karenina too, mm-hmm. because I go back and forth. It's like um, when you have an author of this, it's like Hamlet versus Lear, or Hamlet versus The Tempest, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you have an author of this genius. It really gets difficult to say which is their best, right? right? Emma has its virtues. Pride and Prejudice has its virtues. I think in some ways Emma is more mature mm-hmm. of a work. Which one would I rather read more? Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. And I think that's where it's coming down. I think that that's, I'm, as I'm getting older, I realize that that's fine. I don't have a whole lot of time to just read anything and everything anymore. Mm-hmm. Like when we did The Passenger, right? It's like, I eventually you have to come to terms with the fact that you don't have time to just 
So then you regret having to give your time <laughs> to the passenger. <laughs> right. And so with Anna Karenina, I'm finding out I actually, as much nostalgia as I have for War and Peace, I would want to come back to Anna Karenina again. Mm -hmm. So I think that that makes it the better work. Yeah. Pride and Prejudice, I'd rather come back to it. So I think that makes it the better work. But I really enjoyed Emma. Yeah. And I think you guys have fair opinions and I hope you both die painfully. <laughs> They're both uh, wrong. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, I think you guys, A, represent the democratic majority. Like obviously Pride and Prejudice wins. It's the superior yeah. page turner. I mean, there's just no question. How do you and, like being in the minority about a book that you love by one of the great authors of history? <laughs> why did you say that like you were the devil? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> As I'm swinging this whip. <laughs> Brennan's got like a, I don't even know what that is. It's like a piece of black plastic it's a bungee cord it's, it's a bungee cord it's a bungee yeah. cord it was in your office yeah i, I just don't know it's why it's your bungee cord yeah it's my bungee cord like i'm a villain yeah a bungee cord it just puts a smile on my face nathan that i'm in the minority yeah i'm always in the minority it's, i call it the war and peace minority i'm the guy that didn't like the thing i mean he's pretending he has a whip you know he had that whole indiana jones riff earlier about... that's right yeah that's brandon right. just i just dropped it i dropped it you dropped the whip i dropped the whip yeah and also 50 shades of gray whip yeah <laughs> we're not cutting that no we're not cutting that <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard to come back from <laughs> sure is hey welcome to the bookening yes I'm <laughs> giving I'm giving my big picture I, I would say as a work of construction as a character study there is a lot that I would say actually is superior to Pride and Prejudice. Like, Do you think that a book is a house, Nathan? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. Let's just keep going. <laughs> Emma is a really fun novel to regard as an artifact. It is, uh, oh man, if I have to stoop to this, then I'm not winning the argument, yeah. am I? <laughs> no, this is okay, Pride and Prejudice wins. I'm kind of wondering what in the world's happening right now. <laughs> Emma is a perfect plot, and so is Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice is the perfect plot with a broader cast of characters and a more fun cast of characters and a much less annoying, at least in the first half, heroine. So that's the argument for Pride and Prejudice. The argument for Emma is that it goes... And the humor, too. And the humor. I think Pride and Prejudice is just funnier, start to finish. Yeah. I might disagree with you there. I think that's subjective. I mean, I think these are the two. Of and course it's subjective. I just... Yeah, you laughed. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the funniest stuff in Pride and Prejudice is the funniest stuff in pig. Emma. What? Oh, I was just... He said, of course it's subjective. I said pig. Oh. Badly done, friend. Sir Francis. Yeah. This one has... I, I think nightly is better than Darcy and that matters. Darcy feels a little bit more wish fulfillmenty and cardboard. And that's a knock against pride. But it's not really a knock. We're talking the difference between is the Mona Lisa a better painting or is the last supper. But I would say the characters go a little deeper here. And I think this one has a, for me at least, and maybe this is purely subjective, but this one has a greater emotional punch. Like it's got a real redemption at its center as opposed to a, ah, you know, I should be a little less prejudiced. A little, I mean, all her novels have someone repenting of some, someone, something, but this has kind of a big 
repentance. And I like that and I find it sweet. And I imagine a lot of other people do too. There's an actual change. Yeah, I mean, there is. Darcy and Elizabeth have to learn to not be proud or prejudiced. And it's big and it's emotionally cathartic. And it's it's, it's not like that book lacks for... It's kind of Darcy that does some of the changing in that one too. Darcy does more they change. They both do. And the, yeah. yeah. So you like it only when the woman has to change. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That, like I, I said. I see. I see what it is. Yep. This is, a, this is the superior red pill novel. And that's really all There's I care about. There's nothing wrong with me. It's all her. Yeah. Mm. And I can make her into the woman I want her to yeah. be. I'm just gonna all move. I have to do is just groom her from the age of 13 and discipline her. Yeah. But you don't, <laughs> you don't have to. I met my wife when she was 20-something. And look where you are. Yeah. You can groom late. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, groomer's going to groom. Emma's change is really sweet. Emma's um, change is really sweet. I find it very moving. It's very endearing. And, of course, you understand why you feel everything about Knightley's sort of like on the edge despair, mm. not daring to hope, and then you watch the change, you watch the transformation, you watch him see it happen and sort of like, okay, mm-hmm. like, okay, I guess, I guess this is it. I guess this is the chance. I guess this is the shot. I guess mm-hmm. it's pretty great. It's pretty great. And it's fun to joke about Nathan, the red pill guy, but it's important to emphasize that I am putting my, you know how you can use empathy to identify with a character who's not exactly like you when you read a book? No. Can you explain well, Jake, it turns out you works. can use one of the reasons you can read it, one of the things that's fun about Jane Austen is you can actually put yourself in the shoes of a lady, even though you yourself not a lady. Wait. I don't I'm not really comfortable with that yeah, idea. It makes I me feel kind of like transy or something. Yeah. Like that. I need some red meat and I need to go hunt something right now, guys. Yeah. This makes me this whole conversation is making me uncomfortable. Yeah. You're hey, right. Excuse me while I use some of these pages from my book to light ten cigars. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, so we're walking around in, in high heels. Yeah, we're walking around. Yeah, that's not what I'm saying. What are you, a pretty lady? <laughs> I am. <laughs> I always thought I'm a lady. <laughs> no, I, I have had moments in my life or a trajectory in my life where I was bad and not doing the right things, and then I changed, like I said earlier. And so... I look at this from Emma's point of view and I find it her a figure of identification and I find it sweet, her redemption in a way that's not just like, yeah, look at the little lady change for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's, no, yeah. You're, you're and right. I also get the added bonus of, yeah, look at the little lady change for me, <laughs> which that was the creepy version. But there is a good version of no, that version. that every we, yeah, which we had, we already dealt with that at the beginning of the episode. So. Yeah, but we didn't actually talk. We we talked. We here's why it's not the negative thing. But every t- so, I've mentioned to multiple women. I don't remember who, but I've said, "Hey, we're doing like, what are you doing in the booking?" I say, "Emma." And what do they always say? What do you have to say about Emma? No, what does if if someone if someone likes the works of Jane Austen and you bring up the subject of Emma, what's the next thing out of their mouth? I hate Emma. <laughs> No. <laughs> the next thing out of their mouth is, badly done, Emma. Oh, it's yeah. everybody. That's, that's everybody. Yeah. Everybody keys off of it. Everybody loves it. Yeah. Everybody finds it sweet and cathartic. And yeah, it's uh, great. It's one, of the, it's one of the great moments in literary history. It's one of the great moments in literary history. It's something that husbands and wives and people that are in love 
appreciate because it does. It's not that every man is disciplining every woman, but it does capture. Well, sometimes it's vice versa. Yeah. Sometimes it sure is. Yeah. But women do want a man who is not afraid to stand up to them. And say no. And say no. That's right. Well, every woman tests this with her man because what she knows intuitively is a man who won't stand up to her won't stand up for her. And so this is part of the of the dance of romance in and of itself. And it's why it's so romantic and, and why it can be easily perverted in a, in a culture without real discipline and real manliness into things like Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. But the reality is men are made to protect their women. And in order to feel safe, the man has to feel a little bit dangerous, but not toward her, but also toward her. He has to be able to stand up to her. If he's able to stand up to her, then he's the kind of man who might stand up for her, right? But if she can walk all over him, well, then she he's not the kind of man that can protect her. She has to protect herself, yeah, right? But if he'll step in and protect her from herself, then she can trust him to protect her. And that's part of the romance of it all and the beauty of it all. That's at the heart of what really works about right about the story. This is arguably the great novel about that dynamic, which is a healthy and good dynamic and not something it's something that our culture is so queasy about and has so little experience of that we can't help but hypersexualize. Well, you it turn it into and, John Wayne flipping Marine O'Hara over his leg. Right. Right. Or worse. Or worse. I mean, that's the nice version. Or Fifty Shades of Grey. That's the nice version of what people 40 years ago turned it into. But, yeah, you know, now it just goes into into real nasty pornographic, like, yeah. It's like people don't have any conception of this stuff. And so you have a whole generation of women who actually long for a man who will discipline them, but they don't have any healthy idea of what that might feel like or look like. And so they just find it in these... And it's also in these not, perverse places. Well, then everything too that we do is now filtered through the lens of power and control, right? right? So every narrative is a narrative of power and control, and so or dominance and submission, and so of course that filters into everything that we think about about sex and sexuality. It, it, there's always going to be that sort of correction too, where we try over here to suppress nature, it's going to pop up somewhere else, Mm -hmm. but in a more perverted way, you can't actually suppress nature. What you can do is discipline it according to God's law, but that means acknowledging nature according to God's law. Yeah. And so you come to Emma now in today's culture, and there is something very refreshing about a book that just feels no shame about saying, here is the story of a young woman whose dad is lame and permissive and lets her do whatever she wants. And she's got a lot of really fine natural qualities, but she's just kind of a brat. And she falls in love with the one man who's willing to discipline her, who's willing to stand up to her. And there's nothing perverse or controlling or whatever you want to say about it. What she finds is somebody who can improve her and protect her at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And And that's super sexy to her. And, And, it's something that she can't find in some dope like Frank Churchill. Right. He's just going to laugh along with her. Yeah, yeah he's going to co- sort of continue to enable her, and she's going to find that, on the one hand, she's kind of attracted to him, but on the other hand, 
he's really missing something that she knows she needs, like, and she can't quite put her finger on it. So, but uh, she's never really been in love before, does she? Like, what what's actually going on here? Yeah. And then, and then out of nowhere, the big brother figure in her life just puts her in her place, and it's like, oh, well, that's what I've always needed. Mm-hmm. That's what I've never had. That's what will keep me safe. That's what will help me grow. That's what I can trust. That's what I respect. Therefore, that's what I love. Yeah. Yeah. And it's deeply it's deeply romantic. And the scene where, not the badly done scene, but right after it where she goes and sees Mr. Bates and then she she comes back and she's and Mr. Knightley just happens to be visiting her father or something like that before he goes on some trip and they run into each other and her father's like, good job. You went to Mr. Bates and, and Mr. Knightley sees that, that, right. she, that she's received his correction and, and she's happy and he's happy and they're both like, but they can't really say anything. It's, it's, it's a really romantic scene. Very sweet, very moving, very romantic, sexually charged in a way that's not perverse, but just like, mm-hmm. this is what actual human sexuality is when it's not corrupt. So yeah, there's a million ways to talk about how our culture perverts this and the ways that a young aggro incel dude could take this novel and pervert it in his head or use it as an excuse to do something perverse. But yeah, it's a good story about healthy sexuality. It's relational. He's just willing to tell her and discipline her. And he's not like, there's this weird, I, I don't get on Facebook much, but there's like this now new weird trend with some of the reform guys and these incel guys that like, it's like the anti-dad bod mm-hmm. sort of thing where they all think that they have to be like buff. And have you seen that's this? Just, that, that's just all of the, I, I, I know that that thing exists. I've not seen a lot of it, but a lot of that. So if you are actually paying attention to the culture, what you understand is that there are a ton of kids and this is all downstream Okay, this is a part of the the effeminization of our culture. And these guys are swept up in it, and they don't even know that that's what's going on. But part of what you have, like, there is an epidemic of young men in their teens who are using, who are on gear, steroids. Yeah. Right? And all of this, and, and this is like just a huge increasing trend. And it's a huge increasing trend that's downstream of of the superhero movement and all these guys going on steroids, which if you don't know, if you're not clued in, it doesn't matter how much of a, a natural phenomenon Dwayne Johnson is or Chris Hemsworth or Chris Evans they, or, or any number of other, whoever, pick your poison, Hugh Jackman. Um, these guys, you don't have epic Chris Pratt, for goodness sake. You don't have epic six-month transformations of dropping 50 pounds of fat and putting on 50 pounds of muscle all at once without drugs. And that's what these guys have done. And you don't get to be pushing up on 50 and being the biggest and leanest of your life without being on steroids, Dwayne Johnson. Okay, So you have these guys who, they have all these designer drugs that they're using, and, and they create a standard of of size and beauty that a whole bunch of guys are responding to because it's the opposite of their fat couch potato body that they video game body that they grew up with or that they see in their dad 
Um, but it's all, it's all interwoven and interconnected. And, and it is true that we have a responsibility to take care of our bodies and to be men and as masculine men to have actual physical strength and to do things that facilitate that. And it's also true that there are things that we have to do if we're going to have office jobs and things like that to compensate for that, right? Like not yeah. everybody lives on a family farm and can go out and chop wood or whatever it is, right? So going to the gym is a great thing for a whole lot of people. I'm for it. I do it myself. I'm in the best shape I've been in in 10, 15 years. That doesn't matter. The idea that you have to live at 10% body fat and be jacked out of your mind is stupid. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. In vain. People, people want to be submissive as women or want submission in their women and they don't have see any examples of it. And so, and they don't know how to do it. And, and then they end up doing these cartoonish perverse versions of it. It's just <laughs> the same thing. And people right. feel the, the desire to actually have some strength. They look around and they see wimpy, effeminized men. Maybe their dad was that way. And yeah. And I don't want anybody to not look around and say, Hey, this is an effeminate culture. This was my dad. This is myself. I need to repent of that. And I need to hit the gym and be motivated and get strong and drop some fat and deal with myself. Great. Do that. But don't be obsessive to the point of vanity about it. Mm -hmm. Just take steps to be healthy and strong. Yeah. Or get your life in order. That's okay. That's good. But yeah, the extreme cartoonish version of it is not okay. If it's to the point where you are in your early teens or 20s and you think that, well, what this means is I need to be shooting trend, like you, yeah. you've got a much bigger problem. And it's so connected to vanity. This is not masculinity. It's effeminacy, mm-hmm. right? To be shooting up steroids in your teens or 20, well, at any age, right? There's a time for testosterone replacement therapy, maybe post 40 or something like that potentially. But that's a different question for you and your doctor. Well, so many of these perversions are just born out of such deep effeminate insecurity. Like Mr. Knightley doesn't actually need to spank Emma, nor would that even occur to him because he knows he can do it with a paragraph, with a sentence. Like he's not- With the line. He's not worried about it. done. He could, yeah. Yeah. He could give a speech. It, It wouldn't occur to him to do anything else because he's just a dude. Right. And that's what's nice about these books from a long time ago or from a different era is you're just like, oh, okay. They're not coming from our cultural assumptions. This is just what it kind of looked like. There's an expectation for men to be men and to act like men. And he had it and they made fun of the guys who were foppish and yeah, couldn't do it. And Austin loves to make fun of that sort of guy and to put him in his place and say, well, you can deceive, I guess, an idiot, but not a woman. Right. And yeah. she's properly not doing a cartoon. It's not like, a lady. It's not know. a cartoon. I guess, yeah, my point with that was that there's a lot right now of being performativeness about being a man, mm-hmm. especially in our circles. Yeah, or a woman. Or a woman, yeah. the Like the ultra, super homemaker, mm-hmm. right? And then making everybody right. feel insecure about it on social media mm-hmm. or wherever it might be. Like I'm now only eating meat. Right, because that's going to help my testosterone levels, and then I'm going to go and get rid of my dad bod, and you know, I'm going to start a farm, and I'm now going to take up hunting, and yeah, yeah, all these just... performative masculine things. But if they were actually then to have to stand up to a woman, they wouldn't do it with near as much direct 
direct what masculinity is mm-hmm. nightly. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know how, I, yeah. and that's just part of like taking your cues from mm-hmm. from this growing cult of broken people on social media. Yeah, and all it takes, and this is why I mean, I was talking about this sort of thing just a little bit in a recent sermon because what you have in the in the rise of the masculine gurus are a whole bunch of people who are super crazy broken yeah. and are driven by yeah. anger and fear um, and insecurity. And they're super, they're super weak and they're compensating it for that emotional weakness by being physically out of their minds strong or whatever else. And there's something really appealing about like David Goggins um, and, and, and something that he does get really right. Like, hey, I can't change the fact that my dad was a scumbag and I can sit and wallow in self-pity or I can get over myself. And men are supposed to be hard, so stay hard. But also, I'm so driven by my demons and by my anger and by my fear of being hurt, of being weak, of being perceived weak. My, the name of my book is Can't Hurt Me because I'm still terrorized by the the father figure that I wrote my first chapter of that book about and that I wrote the last two paragraphs of that book about. That it's just like, I mean, you're going to get something super skewed yep. um, in these sort of like online cults of masculinity and manliness. Cameron Haynes is the same way. Um, and, and these guys do really admirable things and perform. They are... David Goggins is a, a modern day superhero type of figure. Like nobody can do the kinds of things that he's done, but man, it comes from such a place of actual brokenness that has never been. And yeah, that never goes away. He's still running from his dad. That's exactly to this day, right. Right now. And his new book is something like never going to stop or not going to quit or something yeah. like that is the name of the book. And it's just like, dude, you're constantly afraid that you're going to stop and you're going to quit and somebody's going to hurt you. Yeah, and in at this point, like, who does David Goggins need to prove himself to? Right. Well, he felt the need apparently to prove himself to three different branches of the military. He's the only person in history to be elite in three branches of the military: Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, and whatever the Air Force version is. The only person to complete all three sets of training. Like, what? And he runs ultra marathons and ultra triathlons. Yeah. And sets course records. Like there's just like, and he has the Guinness book of world records record for pull-ups like of over 4,000. Wow. Like it's impressive when he, mm. w- he had nerve damage in his hands cause he was ripping his skin off. Huh. Like, and he talks about that in this book, which I read years ago, but the, the point is like, dude, that's not whole. Mm-hmm. That's not healthy. No. And it's, there's a level of anger and fear and weakness driving all of that that is not okay and is not admirable no matter what other admirable things there may be surrounding it. Yeah. I mean, I would add the additional complication or the additional wrinkle to this conversation that as a part of a trajectory, I don't think we can be too hard on some level of mild performative energy. You know, sure. You'll, you'll see a married couple where it's like neither one of them came from any sexual healthiness and now he's like, chopping wood and she's wearing a dress and it's, it's a phase towards sort of, it's like they're, they're targeting, yeah, it's they're some, targeting computer is just turned on and they're trying to find yeah. actually zero in like, okay, what does it actually mean? And in the good, good scenarios like that, eventually they relax. They realize she can wear jeans. It's not a threat to her femininity. So right. He can, doesn't have to Absolutely. be, you know, but, but you can't, 
be too as annoying as it can <clears throat> be to be near it. You can't be too hard on a little bit of the performative stuff. Well, so much of this fake it till you make, make it. it. Till you, yeah. yeah. Right. Like, and unless you're willing to fail in a direction, you'll never grow. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're going to fail in the direction of trying to recover something like biblical sexuality, you will make mistakes. You won't repent of your overcorrections until you've overcorrected. Right. And it is again, it is one of those things that unless you've seen it, in a healthy way, you don't have a whole lot to key off of, which is why these online cults of things grow and have traction and why we say over and over in every possible context we possibly can that, okay, like, and we, here we are, we're broadcasting into space. We're, mm-hmm. we're part of it on one level or another, but also we're always saying you need to be a part of a healthy church community mm-hmm. where you can see people who are ahead of you in this. Yeah who are healthy or increasingly healthy, growing in health. Yeah. So that you have something to calibrate to as you calibrate yourselves. Um, and that's just, that's part of the, that's part of the process. So much of, of, of godliness, so much of healthy marriage and family life, so much of healthy sexuality is, uh, are things that have to be caught more than they can be taught. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they have, don't also need to be taught they do but that's part of like all this skewed stuff out there is like well if i say something out loud across the internet it doesn't matter how right or healthy it is if it's heard by broken ears it's going to be interpreted in broken ways um without more to go off of than the actual teaching itself yeah and it's one of the places where an old novel like emma can become a hindrance because you'll find people who have keyed off of those things and they're just they're trying to hold some kind of Victorian ideal of womanhood or Regency ideal or whatever it is. And it's like, that's not actually how it feels. We live in the 21st century. It's it's still it's just it looks a little different. You gotta key off of some some real people now. See how they do it. I mean Mr. Knightley says badly done, but uh, I don't think I, I could actually pull that off. I, I need some other vocabulary words to correct my wife. Sit down. <laughs> Sit down, lady. Okay. Well, we Sorry, sure took care of that. Tangent. I, I don't know what we took care of, but we took care of it. Hey, it's the Hall of Heroes. Heroes. How about Hall of Heroes. Hall of Heroes. I think we kind of just dealt with it, right? Yeah, I don't think we're going to have much more to say about this novel, but I'll take us Knightley's through. a hero. Knightley's a great guy. Is he wish fulfillment? Do you, do you, did you guys feel like Knightley was a flaw of in this novel? Like he's too, he's too, much. too good. He's too Knightley. Too- I mean, I think it, I think the only, I don't think as a man, he is, cause he has his weaknesses and insecurities and he's got his brother and his brother's family and all, some of these other things. I think the biggest flaw is why on earth is John Knightley 38 in single still. You mean George Knightley? George. John's married to yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. Sorry. Yeah. Easy to get those two names confused. But yeah, why is George, how did George make it to 38 and be single? Well, that's one of the reasons you have the conversation like we had at the beginning, because it's like, well, how hard was this guy pining for, for this Emma. young lady? And Was he really just like, it's Emma or The Bachelor's Life for me? Like, yep. yeah, I don't know. I think the nice, I think the good version is what he said was, it's The Bachelor's Life for me. I think that's kind of what we're supposed to like. He's like, well, that's a, I'm a big brother. That's not really going to work. But, but then he 
thought better of it a little later. Um, as the mechanicians of the, I, I like, like, I'm not convinced. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I'm not convinced that Mr. Knightley actually has had the groomy attitude of like one day, obviously, mm-hmm. when she's old enough. Yeah. The, the way the novel's written, call it a work of fantasy if you want, but the way the novel's written, it's more like he's like, yeah, she's attractive and stuff, but she would be the one if there was a one, but there's not, and there's not gonna be. Yeah. And he has other preoccupations. Yeah. He's got to do his whatever his business is with that Jane Austen doesn't care about at all. Yeah. I just, there's a truth universally acknowledged that a man in possession of a large fortune must be in want of a wife. Yes. And he is all those things and, a, and more mm-hmm. all the way to 38. And some... Four fine. years before Jane Austen died. Yeah. He's made it almost as, lived almost as long yeah. as she did. Some eligible woman... Yeah, surely. Somewhere. I mean, he's had women probably that want like, some one bright, beautiful from the right social circles and the right level of intelligence has has even as small as the social circles might have been. I mean, it's not like he doesn't take trips to London, right? And, and well, and that's like where Jane Austen's that. cheating. I I think she's just cheating. She's just saying these are the these are the pieces on the playing board, and there aren't any more. And it doesn't matter whether there would be or should be. There there aren't. Deal with it. And you just kind of have to give her that, I think. Um, but would it hold up in real life? No, there's no. A, there's an element of fairy tale to it. But I, but I'm fine with it. I mean, if Knight, if Knightley is too perfect, if he's flawed in that way, if he's if he, there there's something fantastical you have to accept about him. I think it's the kind of thing where I'm like, it's the flaw that makes it a good novel. Like everything else is calibrated in a certain way, and then Knightley is the element that you throw in that might not be strictly realistic, but that's kind of, that's the experiment we're doing. We're Mm -hmm. saying, here's our control group. And now let's introduce nightly and see what happens. He's a little bit better than he's not perfect, but he's a little bit better than the average gentleman of means would be. And let's just see the question we're asking is what happens when you put this guy who's a little bit better than into this situation. And the answer is what happens in the novel? So if he's a flaw, he's like, everybody says like a beautiful woman has to have a flaw that like, she has to have like a, a little, a dimple on her chin or something that in and of itself is ugly, but it's, it's, it, it makes her extra beautiful. And it's not just because the contrast of it, it's because it's actually like the thing that becomes beautiful by it's the flaw that sets the, makes the diamond or whatever. I think Knightley is like that in terms of literary achievement. He's if he if he's a flaw he's a necess- he's one that's necessary to the book's conceit. Oh no, we're entering the villain's lair. He's got any thoughts about the villains? Uh, <laughs> and who would be considered the villains? Well, I mean, Emma, I guess. Mister Church, I mean, Emma, until Frank, she's sorry. not. I mean, Frank, Frank, kinda. but it's all pretty tame. The Eltons. Well, yeah, the Eltons. Okay, yeah. Yeah. The Eltons. But the Eltons are such a joke. They're not much of a threat to anybody. Yeah, not exactly. like Not like Lady de Burgh or whatever. And I right. was reading somebody trying to defend him that if, that it's natural enough to show interest in your love interest's friends and that maybe we give him a bad rap or something. In your love interest's friends. Like when he shows interests in what's her face? In Harriet. Harriet, yeah. 
that it should have been obvious to Emma that she was. I in the think wrong. it should have been obvious to Emma. It was obvious to Frank, and it was yeah. obvious, or not uh, Frank. It was obvious <clears throat> yeah. to both George and John. And yeah. that's not really a knock against him. The and they told her is, so. Yeah, she well, lived in her own dream world about yeah. all these things. The reason that it's a knock against him is because Jane Austen actually is a supporter of the class system, and it right. is not appropriate for him to think that Emma could be his prize to win. Yeah, except that except for that she's an idiot and leads him on. That she totally leads him on and. And she's just as mistaken in thinking that Harriet is in his class. Yes. And so she she's all offended that he would dare think that he could aspire to Emma. But she's been plotting the same thing. But she's been plotting the exact same thing yeah. for for him. And so, I mean, that's just part of the the mess of it. But what But it's not but, what but, but if you not take saying a half step back, it's just like, well, Emma, like, what's he supposed to think? And what what is going to conspire with his his desires and his his self respect and his high view of himself, his aspirations? Right. It's it is not Harriet. Nope. Yeah. I mean, she yeah, she's she's idiotic. I mean, that is her stupidest moment. Who is Emma? it? Emma. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is fun watching Which... George be right about absolutely everything mm-hmm. the entire time yeah yeah and so i mean then so there is a case then that emma in the beginning is the villain because she sets everything up that's well and damaging even to the unlikely she creates all the problems right yeah i mean she almost costs multiple people their happiness so that's pretty villainous i mean what she does to harriet is unforgivable and lydia and um wickham isn't it's wickham right yeah they're the i mean wickham's the villain right and he causes problems for everybody yeah. So if we're looking at like in the scheme of the Austin universe, what makes you a villain? It's usually either through lack of lack of direction or through your direct malignant mm-hmm. direction causing problems for others. Yeah. So that's why Mr. Bennett is a villain. Right. right? So I think Emma's a villain. Yeah. And she's a though she turns to the light side due to the Jedi powers of Mr. Knightley. Right. And together they undo all the wrongs that yeah. She has done. Mm-hmm. That's right. They un- undo all the... Sp- and it takes both of them together to undo yeah. it. It's like yeah. the uh, new Enchanted movie. Where Which is why you... The heroine becomes the villain. If you want to say that Darcy's more wish fulfillment, it's that Darcy undoes everything. Mm-hmm. And it has the power to undo everything. He just disappears. He comes back. All our problems are yeah. solved. Everybody's problems are solved. He's just that awesome. He's rich mm-hmm. Darcy. Knightley's rich too, though. He's yeah. so rich that she doesn't even have to mention how much he makes. But she right? doesn't. Stand so to gain anything. Yeah, she's, she's. That is one thing I forgot to mention is that as far as like classes within the novels, Emma's, I think, her only rich heroine. Mm-hmm. Well, and I did, I did want to make the point that Emma's not, Emma is stupid for erasing class distinctions with Harriet, but it's, or what, I, what I, the way a lot of people will read this novel is, hey, aren't class distinctions stupid? Shouldn't Harriet be able to marry who she wants? And Mr. What's the bad, the. Churchill? Mr. Well, not Churchill, Elton. but Mr. Elton. It, wouldn't it be great if everybody could just do what they want? But no, the way actually, Emma's stupid for putting Harriet forward. Yeah. And, and uh, also the... In the, the, the idea that we don't the El- have these class distinctions today is ridiculous and stupid. We, do, we just call them different things. We just call them different things yeah, or we tough. don't call them anything. Mm-hmm. And we but all the pre- fact is... They exist. They absolutely exist. And we end up more or less staying within our class 
Right. Yeah. And it's that's, just you don't you yeah. don't move. You don't yeah. and some of that's just comfort and nature and it's just like how things tend to work and there are always exceptions to that. But that, there were then too. Saying. Jane Austen always builds one or two of them into her novels and this yeah. one it's the and those exceptions beautiful story have reasons that face, work. Jane Fairfax. Right. Um, and also oh man. I think it speaks to Emma's understanding of this as well because I think she would never see this about herself. But I think she sees Harriet's is beneath her in social class and that she doesn't like the fact that Harriet sees that as well and wants to marry into the farmer's family. Mm-hmm. And she wants Harriet to be in the same class, so she kind of has to marry Harriet up so that she can justify being friends with her. Right. Well, and, right. and imagine a history for Harriet where she's probably actually a lot classier than yeah. she is. But surely she can't just be this humble, right? Sure she's smart. Sure she's pretty. Surely she's from a, a high-class background that's just unknown. Yeah, right. so that I can actually be friends with her. Yeah, I mean, Jane Austen does have fun with class. There's the party Emma goes to where it's like, well, she shouldn't have gone to the party, really. She shouldn't have accepted the invitation. But she had fun, and she wanted to, and hey. She was offended, but also. She would have been offended if she wasn't invited, and she's also offended that she was, but then she goes, and it's fun. Um, So, okay, Emma's the villain. Yeah. I mean, in the Jane Austen universe, men are villains, well, it goes both Lady ways. Lady Catherine. Yeah. <clears throat> Emma really wants. The, the, nobody gets a more a worse send-off than the woman from Mansfield Park, Miss Norris. Miss Aunt Norris, and yeah. The, and the sister, yeah. Um, J- Emma really wants that one girl to be the bad guy. Jane Fairfax, yeah. yeah. Which just speaks more about her than it does Jane. Right. That she's, yeah. Well, the richness of Jane Fairfax is... What does she see in Frank Churchill? Which is something I always wonder when I, I mean, what she sees is a guy that's pleasant and has a lot of money. A way but, out of her situation, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, she's going to be a governess, or isn't she? Yeah, she's a Charlotte or the character. But we're not allowed to actually ever get an insight into what does this supposedly perfect and very incisive lady actually think about the character yeah. of Frank Churchill? Like, is, the, is he just a way out for her or does she really just love him or well he has a he has enough to commend himself yes. that Emma still kind of likes him and, right and Jane's know, the kind of girl bit, that could tell herself she loves him she could make right. herself love him do her duty and love him he's I think I think that Jane Austen would say that he's at least a step up from Mr. Collins like yeah he's he's not Wickham or he's not Wickham he's not Collins he's he's got some flaws but you know what He's moving in a higher strata yeah. than mm-hmm. than Fairfax, and so while he's got some real weaknesses and failures, his money and good looks and good humor count for something, right? Right. And his willingness to step outside of his strata, outside of his class. And I think we're not maybe quite supposed to think that Mr. Knightley is being completely fair when Mr. Knightley reads the letter at the very end and he's being all grumpy but saying, well, I can sort of see where he had a point. Yeah, he um, was he was prejudiced against Frank. Right, and I think as a reader, we're and kind very of much driven by jealousy, and we're supposed to be kind of smirking at it. Yeah, we're smirking yeah. at it, and we're more with Emma. We're like, yeah, hey, Frank Churchill's. It was stupid. He was deceptive. He was an idiot. He was an idiot. But hey, you remember who else was an idiot? Georgie dear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Me. <Yeah. laughs> Plus, you and McGregor can never really play a villain. That's right. That's him. That was a stacked cast. Oh, man. Um, He plays the cricket in that Pinocchio thing. He does a good job. Yeah. 
All right. So Emma's the villain. Good job. He's uh, just kind of special. Crawl wave, secondary characters. Ooh, and I, feel, we, yeah, I feel comfortable in this. Anybody we want to give a special shout out to? Um, I think we already mentioned Miss Bates. I, yeah. I think she's great. She is great. I, I mean, I don't know if we talked about this on or off, Mike, but I do want to give a shout out to the actual Harriet as she appears in the book and not the Harriet as she appears in the movie. They never get her right. Yeah. They, they always want to dumb her down and make her funny, which is what the Tony Collette version and the Gwyneth Paltrow does. Or they want to say, they want to be political about it and say that a woman without means can't actually be as stupid and simple and kind of yeah. lame as Harriet is in the novel. She, she must be someone who actually does have some qualities that the other characters just don't see. I um, really like the clueless Harriet. Who plays her? I don't. I don't know. I don't think she did anything else. But in the book, she's there's a reason she's got the position she had at the boarding school. There's a reason she has the affection of everyone. There's a re- she's reason. Even, even Mr. Knightley comes around. Yeah. She, mm-hmm. So she's an artless, amiable girl. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we all know our fair share of artless, amiable girls. And sure. I think she's, yeah. Harriet's one of the ones that rings the truest to be. Yeah. Mm, I don't honest. And I don't think that she has been fairly portrayed. And I, in the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, she's too much of a she's too much of a goofball. So the kind of just head, yeah. So it makes it funny. It's, it's there for the humor because she's supposed to be this project that really why is she a project for Emma? Right, right. But it's not the way it is in the book. Well, she's, and then in, she's more fool around. The love story between Herman and Samwise Gamgee is cute. Mm-hmm. So yeah. And then in the Anna Taylor Joy one, Emma nightly nightly proposes to Emma. And she gets a nosebleed and runs off to apologize to Harriet for how she's misused her and all this stuff before she comes back and can finally accept Knightley. Yeah. So it's like we need to feel really bad about Harriet. And Jane Austen wouldn't give Harriet that much dignity. I mean, mm-hmm. she's like, whatever. Harriet was nice and amiable yeah. and kind of stupid. And I'm But it's sure. also really stupid for her to think that she could be aspiring to Knightley. Right. And that's yeah. part of... Emma being put in her own place and yeah. also realizing her, you know, what she really thinks and feels. Yeah. Yeah. Wait a minute. Come on, Harriet. The only person he could possibly marry is me. Yeah. That's Wait pretty cringe. Just the idea that Harriet even got that in her head is, and that Emma planted it there is about as office as this gets. Yeah. The only other side character I'd like to shout out is the dad because he's kind of funny. That's funny. His hypochondria is one of the funnier dad figures. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of got the Mr. Bennett quality without being just completely but awful. I, I really like the former governess's husband. Just yeah. The, that couple. Yeah. Mr. Weston? Are they the Westons? Yeah, the Westons. Yeah. That's yeah, who yeah, I was yeah. looking for. They're always trying to do something The Westons good. are pretty fun. Yeah. And he's pretty fun whenever <laughs> he shows up. And he's just got yeah. a really fun personality. Brings some color to, the, to a book that I think relative... Other other Austin novels just doesn't have a, as much ca- color in the side characters. <laughs> yeah, this is the Emma Knightley show, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's no War and Peace. There's no War and Peace. <laughs> then neither is War and Peace. Hannah Karenina is actually War and Peace. The wait, what? <laughs> I don't know what that meant. Um, War and Peace might have Anna Karenina beat on the amazing cast of side characters. Yeah, I don't know. Just the breadth of it. Okay, breadth, but not quality. I don't know about that. That'll be fun. Well, that's another debate. That's another debate. Dolly, Steva. That's true. 
I mean, the the dudes at the opera, all the, I mean, I don't it, know, it, it's probably kind of We can start naming people for more in peace. Less, and we, yeah, we got to wait. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Um, I, I will say Jane Austen does a nice job with something that I see a lot of authors fail at, which is she she threads the needle of how Emma became Emma pretty well. You have the dad who's just checked out and stupid enough, and you've got Mrs. Weston who's got enough good qualities that you understand how what, – what, what she does nicely is you do actually understand why Emma has some good qualities. It's not just magic that – Well, she's also rich enough that she has the time for it too, yeah. right? So. But I mean good personality qualities. Like yeah. you can see how – She Mrs. had a mom and the mom mattered even yeah. though she died. Right. She has real class. Like she comes from a class that built – all of the wealth and everything that she inherits. And right. so she inherits more than just the money. Yeah. She inherits, she inherits an intellect. She inherits a lot of things downstream of that, even if some of that is lost because mom died and dad went soft. Right. And you can see how Mrs. Weston, while being way too permissive of a governess, probably did help develop a lot of things that are good about Emma and that do make her more deserving of Mr. Knightley than she would be otherwise. And we don't just have to accept and Emma suffers for her own, for, for all of those things. She, her character suffers. Her cultivation, she is an unweeded garden, yeah. right? Like she has all of the talent that Jane Fairfax does, but no, n- nobody ever pushing her or disciplining her right. or requiring her to cultivate any of it. And she's always been good enough to get by. Yeah. I mean, that's a painfully relatable thing when she's she sees Jane's Fairfax drawing, I think, and then she's like, I'm going to start drawing again. And she draws again for a, a, a minute and a half. Like, yeah. Who hasn't done that one way or another? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could have been. Yeah. I could have. Oh, man. Uh, and I wish I hadn't quit piano lessons. Is that yeah. uh, when I see Brandon? Brandon's a really good piano player, folks. He's a concert pianist. He's a concert pianist. Yeah. It's another way his life could have been. We could have been done, doing a podcast about the great. Piano concertos. Piano concertos, yeah. yeah. Um, well, that'd be something. Yeah, wouldn't that be entertaining? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I think a lot of times in these books, you're like, why did Emma end up good at all? I don't know. I guess the author just needed And, and in the other books, you're like, well, you know, she wouldn't have been that bad. But Jane Austen threads that needle really, really well. Um, okay. Twists and turns. <laughs> Now we've got a plot. There's one big turn. Mm-hmm. And it sure is a turn. The turn, you mean the turn of Emma from bad Emma to good Emma? Yeah. And then the realization that actually she's seen, she has been wrong in every possible way this entire novel. And it's all flipped on its head. Yep. And George has been right in every mm-hmm. possible way. And it's all flipped on its head. Mm-hmm. And now we've got to sort of untangle the mess that she's made. Yep. And then we can get to some smooching. What do they call it in Harry Potter? At some. Some snogging. 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 Yeah. Ugh, my least favorite thing about those books. Let's get to some snogging, baby. Yeah, some sh- some snogging. Yeah. There's also one big twist. What? Frank Churchill's the guy that's in love with Jane Fairfax. What? And it's been a thing the whole time. What? He bought the piano. What? what? <laughs> People say this book doesn't have a plot. Oh, man. Agatha Christie is rolling in her grave. Yeah. So she should be. Roll all the way into the garbage heap. Oh, old crone nathan nah we love agatha christie on this podcast she's yeah. great people that like her are smart year 10 is going to be the year of agatha year agatha christie it was agatha all along it was agatha all along, it was agatha all along. Oh. you guys said you're welcome out. for that no 
I haven't either. I didn't. It's know not out. Really it's not available for the one such as us. Oh. It was out. For it didn't a, show up here in theaters, and oh. it's not out on Netflix right. yet. If it would have showed up in theaters, I think we would have done it. it yeah. yeah, it's supposed to be good. Yeah, it's supposed to be good. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure it'll hate us, but whatever. It'll be entertaining. Ryan Johnson hates everybody. Yep. Hey, it's the Salon of Style. How about that, Jane Austen? She can put a sentence together. She can. Yeah, you know, I want to. I'll, I'll throw this out there. I don't think that the style of Emma matches the style of Pride and Prejudice. Hmm. I'll throw this out there. Your face <laughs> out of the podcast, <laughs> away from the microphone. Wow. Um. I don't. I don't see that. I think that's just anti-Emma prejudice. I'm going to throw this out there. Yeah. I kind of felt like they were written by the same person. <laughs> oh, Brandon's putting the difference here. <laughs> They're all of a piece. Yeah. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to make this interesting so that we don't just say, oh, she's great. Mm. I think that just it, maybe there's maybe that style's not really the, the thing. Well, the conversation, I think, in Pride and Prejudice might have sparkled a bit more. I just think Even a lot of things one. sparkle more. The humor, the conversation, the banter, the back and forth, the things that happen. Like you start off with the funny, full of nuance conversation between Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. Uh, yeah, okay. I'll give you that the side characters sparkle more, but I will not give you that Darcy and Elizabeth sparkle more than Knightley and Emma. All their scenes crackle. Okay. Prove it. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that top to bottom, mm-hmm. there's just more sparkle page for page, pound for pound and Pride and Prejudice. I, I think I, I, I might give you that, but I, but I, but I will maintain. I part of it might just be that it's a tighter book too, isn't it? Shorter? Emma or being Pride and Prejudice? No, Pride and Prejudice yeah, is shorter. Part, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Emma has... And it feels a, the benefit of being shorter. Yeah, well, yeah. plus a lot more happens. Like Emma yeah. is, like Sir Walter Scott said, Emma is like... A very self-contained small story for taking as long as it does. Yeah, and it's not a criticism, he, just an observation. You might have a point. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Everything's great. This book's great. It's one of the best books we've done on the podcast. It and is a great book. book. <laughs> I agree with you there. <laughs> but she might get have used an editor. Nah, no. Nah. That might be one of the most. Only an editor to tell her to write more. Oh, am I, what do you call that? What is that? The most something that I've ever said. Provocative. Asinine? Asinine. Maybe asinine. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that Jane Austen needed an editor. It's just funny. No, I think if, she, if, Jane, Audacious, Austen, yeah. if Jane Austen needed an editor, she needed somebody at the end of Mansfield Park to say, no, go ahead and write the love scene between Ed, Edmund and Fanny. We want it. We can't live without it. Yeah, don't just tell us that they happened. Yeah, just don't just tell us that it happened, you idiot. And she needed somebody to say the same thing in Persuasion, if, if I'm remembering correctly. No, we actually need you to not just tell us that things happen. You need to like write it out instead of dying Idiot. Yeah, yeah. Badly done, Jane. Good grief, Jane. Yeah. Too bad there wasn't a man in your life to keep you alive. Keep you alive. <laughs> yeah. Women are always dying. <laughs> Only men can keep them alive. That's right. <laughs> That's my red pill. That's my red pill opinion. It's our manly essence. Yeah. Uh, oh man. Remember when you got- misogyny at its finest? One star. Yep. <laughs> yeah. One star of the podcast. Oh, Nathan what did that latest review say about what? us? That was pretty funny. It's something like that. Yeah. Massage, yeah. It's good. Um, I don't know. We, we, sure, we have to be done, but let's see. What do we still have? How long have we been going? Forever, man. Yes, it's like this, three this hours. Is, this is going oh, yeah. to be a good podcast. That should be done in like 20 minutes. Yeah, we'll be done. I, it's, happen, it's happening. Um, 
Ish. I mean, I, I've got, I've got yeah. <laughs> Brandon walking out. This, this is a. Isn't this the haven of deeper reflection? We haven't gotten there. We're about to deeper get there. Meaning. We're still in the salon of style. Yeah, get us out of here. Yeah, Jake's Jake's right. Pride and Prejudice has more sparkle. Emma's awful. No, she this, forgot how to write with this book. The scenes between Emma and Knightley rip, and the scenes between Darcy and Elizabeth rip don't. one. Uh, <laughs> whoa! <laughs> I thought you were talking about the problems with fart jokes in in. Cormac McCarthy, Brandon. Oh, yeah. How one forgets. <laughs> How one forgets. Yes, like, like a fart in the wind. Hey, it's the haven of reflection upon deeper. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> <Meaning>. Juxtaposition. <laughs> like a fart in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's the haven of reflection upon deeper meaning. Hey, hey. it's a book it with sure some meanings is. in it. Yep. We've talked about all we of them. We have already talked about them. Yep. Every woman craves to be dominated <laughs> by a man. That's what yeah. It's like. Yeah. Red meat-eating man. Yeah. I love that scene where he just goes and tears the leg off that deer while they're out in the woods mm-hmm. and just eats it, makes her yep. watch. Bro, yeah. 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 Swats her on the behind and says, prepare this deer for me. He grows a huge beard. Like you were scene. made to do. Yeah. He starts wearing flannel. Yeah. It's good stuff. When he grabs the deer and rips its throat out with his teeth. And uses its spine to split wood. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. That's good stuff. His chest rips open because his pecs get so big. Right. Yeah. Like an alien movie. <laughs> his chest <laughs> rips open. <laughs> Manliness comes out. <laughs> He's just screaming. It becomes body horror. <laughs> yeah. This is a great body horror novel. Yeah. <laughs> and zombies. Make it happen. Amazon Emma, 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 We have Pride and Prejudice in, in Zombies. Emma, so we need Emma and Aliens. Emma and Aliens. I'd read that. Beat, sure beat C and Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. That was their that was their actual way of trying to keep that franchise alive. And is it really? Yeah. Boy, do you see used copies of that book in a crummy used bookstore. <sighs> Just didn't have the same thing that Pride and Prejudice and Zombies had. <laughs> All right. Sensibility and Sea Monsters. Yeah. <laughs> Emma and Aliens is not bad, though, I'll tell you. It'd be awesome. The whole dinner party just gets decimated. <laughs> yeah. The What do they call it? The zygote? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The zygma. The badly done, Emma. You shouldn't let that face hugger come into this, our yeah. spaceship. <clears throat> All right. I'm vaguely sick, and I'm literally losing my voice right now. So I think the podcast must come to an end very soon. It must be... It sadly done. <laughs> Must be. Way to let yourself get sick, Nathan. What? Way to let yourself get sick. That's real unmanly. I've you, got you lose. I've got two toddlers. I got a toddler and a baby. Uh, they yeah, pick up yeah, all yeah, the diseases. Yeah. A real man stares down sickness and tells it to run away. Yeah, I told my wife, you keep those sick babies from getting sick. And she disobeyed. I guess you gotta go spank her. Yep. Badly done, Meredith. If there's anything we've learned from this novel it's that okay where are we the patrons you guys want to shout out these patrons are we not going to rate this book oh yeah how many alien zygotes out of 47 do you give to emma brandon well only because pride and prejudice would get 47 i give this 46.999 yeah you've got 46.999 pounds in one little finger of your fat hand Thank you, <laughs> Brandon, or what's Jake's name? Jake. Jake. 
how many zygotes out of 47 do you give to Emma? 47. That's how it's done, you fat freak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of fat freaks. How many would you give it, Nathan? 47. Okay. Put those women in their place nightly. Okay. I hope somebody listens to this and gives us one star. One star. We just want one. <laughs> we just want one star. In your review, you can say, badly done, Bookening Boys. Badly done, Bookening Boys. Badly done. You better not be a lady, though. We don't give your opinions any truck around here. That's right. This is the Boys Club. This is the Boys Club. <laughs> the Boys Kening. <laughs> All right. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Hey, mom, dad. Our philanthropy dodger. Bootstrap Bev Betsy. Hey guys. Just saying hi. What's little up, guys? Little Anthony Cigar Store. Hey man. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> <laughs> man, I am actually, I am like literally I'm so losing my voice right now. I think I'm gonna send this list to you guys. You can tell me to do something, you can make me like respond to it, but we're gonna say it? No, let's just say it. Okay. You do you guys do what you want. Okay, send it to us. We're waiting. Here it comes. All right, where are we at? What do we just do? Oh, that's a long list, man. Jimmy Beam and Lil Annie Oakley. Lily of the Valley. Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. The Keith Master. John and Jill and Lil Baby Max. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese, and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. Brandon, you put candy in your mouth. I did. Yeah. So did you. Ah. Uh, ah. Well, now it's on the side of my mouth. Badly done, Brandon. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Consul Prime Adam. Nathan, not me. Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith the Ladies of Justice. DJ Sammy G. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Lavender's Green, Dillon, Dillon, Lavender. Noah Constrictor. Mara Cheap. I think we call her Mara Cheap. Mara Cheap. We've only said it 10,000 times. <laughs> Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese and brick red. Cheese hater. Jiu-Jitsu Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Midnight Ninja Allen. <laughs> Jay of Rack and Ruin. Timothy, the writer at Dawn. Eric and Kate, the champ. <laughs> Eric and Kate, <laughs> the camp champ kings who are warm and love bees. Observe, dear listener, that it's not as easy as it sounds. Maddie, 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 Sweet Jamie Sunshine. Tyler, the keeper of eternal darkness, and Laura, the keeper of eternal light. Cold still, Cody. Jacqueline, the librarian, barbarian. John Bombadillo, Bombdiggity, and Captain Tennille, his mate. Saxophone Alex. The other saxophone Alex and dubstep Danny. Ryan, the terror of Texas, and Eric, the cream and crimson. Who no longer are stuck in the cold, please send cheese. Eric of the cream and crimson. Yeah. Man, we are Ryan, the terror of Texas, and Eric of the Cream and Crimson, who are no longer stuck in the cold, please send cheese. Ben Solo and Kyla Ren. John, the Cosmic King of Chaos. Matthew, the Mind Flayer. Annie, are you okay? Get your gun. Fly to the Valerie. Thor Ragnajosh. Steven dot dot dot. Pegalodon. <laughs> oh, I don't think I was here when that one came. <laughs> Christopher, the Flower Hulk. Lady of the Crystal Lake. Ian, the Dothmarian, Lord of Death. The Mysterious Phantom. Jeremy, the Dark Hooded, Lord of Death, and the Brooding Bride. Maya! Maya. Remains of the J. 
Abram, the puller of teeth. The Mort de Trenton. <laughs> Daniel, a man among men, and Jen, who strikes again every now and then. Hey, how do you become a part of that list? Patreon.com forward slash the booking. Go and give as much as we have to have, I think, $10 a month in order to be shouted out. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you want to be shouted out and also get some awesome rewards, $25 gets you the t-shirt, $50 gets you the book, and that's really where you want to be. That's a sweet spot because you get the book, the t-shirt, and the shout out. And the book is a high quality copy like the one referenced in today's episode and personalized to you, signed by each of the three of us with a personal note um, that is generally humorous in nature. Mm -hmm. Generally. So it's a great way to build your library and your wardrobe Mm -hmm. and your ego Mm -hmm. while supporting this show. $50 a month. Yeah, I mean, you Or more, I think $100 a month gets you... A book? You get to choose a book for us to review. Yeah, it gets you the ability to pick a book for us to review. We have Mm -hmm. a couple people sign up at that level. We could use a couple people more. Mm-hmm. We could. If you don't like the book, you can tear the pages out and sew them into another shirt. Mm-hmm. If you don't like the shirt, you can tear it apart and put it in the form of a book. There you go. <laughs> Whatever you want. It's yours once you get it. You can do a lot you of things. You can do all the things. Yeah. Whatever you want. All right. What have we learned today, gentlemen? You can cut the letters out of the book and send us creepy Ooh. letters that you've formed using the letters from the book. I like that idea. Wish somebody would do that. <laughs> well, now somebody's going to do that. <laughs> All right. I feel like this was a good episode. This was vintage booking. Yeah, this felt good. This felt good. <laughs> the passenger felt good too. Yeah. It's been a good day of booking. But, but it was the passenger. Yeah, we should do it more often. Yeah, we should. Goodly done, gentlemen. Goodly done. Goodly done. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.